Hello, everyone. First of all, I'd love to thank you for tuning in to the Integrative Thoughts podcast. I am your host, Matt Kaufman. And through this platform, I plan on seeking out guests that interest me, that I am curious about, and overall just living a more meaningful, purposeful life in hopes that you as listeners and I myself can grasp onto a little bit of their knowledge and integrate that into our daily lives. If you are a longtime listener to the Integrative Thoughts podcast, you know how often I stress the importance of detoxification. I believe that heavy metals such as mercury and aluminum, along with environmental pollutants like mold, plastics, and pesticides, are at the root cause of every dysfunction and chronic illness in the modern era. That's why I recommend ZeoCharge. ZeoCharge is 100% natural zeolite that does not contain any fillers, binders, or additives. ZeoCharge has not been shown to bind to any of your beneficial minerals or other nutrients. I take two tablespoons of ZeoCharge with filtered water every single day about an hour after breakfast. It is my go-to for detoxification support that I believe can assist any and every healing protocol on the market. If you would like to try out ZeoCharge, go to the link in my show notes and use code ITP for 10% off your entire order. So listen, I've been experimenting with different types of minerals, especially magnesium, for the past five to six years. But I could never really find a product that I could feel the benefits that magnesium claimed to give. Magnesium is one of the most important minerals for all of human health. It participates in over 600 different biochemical reactions in the body, yet over 80% of the population is deficient. Magnesium deficiency can increase risk for all disease and greatly decrease optimal performance. That's why I like Bioptimizers. They use all seven forms of magnesium in a highly bioavailable form in their product Magnesium Breakthrough. Magnesium helps with stress, anxiety, sleep, immune function, detoxification, and so much more. If you want to try out this product, head over to Buy Optimizers and use code INTEGRATIVETHOUGHTS10 to receive a 10% discount on their amazing product, Mag Breakthrough. Today's guest is Clark Engelbert, and he is the CEO of Nutritional Analytics. He has some amazing information on Instagram and Facebook. If you don't follow him, definitely check him out there. And he is a mineral nutritional balancing practitioner. He is the single person that got me into mineral balancing myself. And he was certified by Dr. Wilson and worked with him for a period of time and before starting Nutritional Analytics. And we're going to dive into the history of HTMA and where it really comes from and where did we figure out all of these mineral interactions and these heavy metal interactions. And then for most of the show, we get into his favorite topic, and that's ionic mimicry. And that's basically the fact that heavy metals can substitute on enzyme binding sites where your minerals should be and how we can use hair tissue mineral analysis to manipulate the entire mineral system all at once. And that will turn on your endogenous detoxification pathways. So if you guys know, I love mineral balancing. This is one of my favorite shows that I've ever done. So enjoy. Clark, welcome to the show. How's it going? Matt, what's going on, man? Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I am super excited about this. I think that um, you're obviously the reason that I've even had a lot of these mineral balancing shows from the very beginning. I heard you on some podcasts and it really sparked my interest and seemed like it was connecting some dots uh, from along my all the research that I've done basically through the things that we kind of have talked about through my Lyme disease and the different doctors I was seeing for years and years and the mold exposure I had as well. And 
when I listened to you on a podcast and then I started digging in more and then talking to you a little bit on Instagram, chatting with Aaron quite a bit. And I got into this whole world of mineral balancing and now I'm signed up to be a practitioner. So I guess if we uh, get started here, maybe we'll, you can walk us through what actually got you into mineral balancing and what was your experience with it in the beginning? Yeah. So I got into mineral balancing many years ago, maybe around late 2012, 2013, I had kind of been on my own health journey for a long period of time uh, prior to that, since about like 2006, when I started to really have some pretty bad anxiety, pretty bad panic attacks, uh, like in my early 20s. And, um, you know, kind of got hit with just some random panic attacks out of nowhere, you know, because as a young guy at college, I was overdoing partying, burning the candle at both ends, those sorts of things. And that caught up to me pretty quick in my early 20s, had some panic attacks out of nowhere, didn't know what anxiety was at that point. So I, I wasn't really aware of even what a panic attack was. And so, um, you know, it kind of went through a bunch of different protocol systems. I went through the medical system for many years. I got put on medications for anxiety and depression, uh, a benzo and an SSRI, you know, cycled through a bunch of different ones, but ultimately ended up, you know, kind of going through the medical system as much as I possibly could. Went through all the different types of testing, went to the ER all these times with these crazy panic attacks. Cause when you have a panic attack, you basically think you're dying. And so went through that, uh, for about six years or so. And, uh, you know, was on medications, uh, you know, the benzo and the SSRI for about that period of time. And, you know, about a year or two into that, I was dating a girl whose mom was a nurse. And she had recognized that I was on the benzos and she was like, you know what, Clark, you're not supposed to be on that medication for any longer than four weeks consecutively. And so that kind of that started me down this path of like, oh, shit, like I am on this medication. I'm I think I'm dependent on it because it is addictive. Um, I was starting to get like interdose withdrawal at that point. That started me in on this path of like realizing that medicine was really, really bad at dealing with the problems that I was trying to deal with and trying to remedy. And so that's really when I started to search and, and seek out answers outside of the medical system. Um, you know, in and around that period of time, like 2008, 2009, um, you know, and I basically failed a bunch of times with a bunch of different systems for a couple of years. Um, and then eventually in about 2012, late 2012, I kind of came to a point in my life where I knew I needed to like exert my will and come off of those medications and just stop them no matter what happened because they had been really impacting my health and my personality and so many other aspects of my life. It was like I had to come off of them at that time. It was kind of like do or die because who I was, my personality, my life had been so impacted that I, I eventually came off of them at this facility in Minnesota and that's uh, about the time that I discovered mineral balancing and hair tissue mineral analysis. So once yeah, I... Yeah, my um, I guess, you know, good and bad thing with the, uh, the medications, I actually never was willing to take anything like that, even though I had severe depression because I watched right. my brother um, get... He had started had panic attacks when I was a little bit younger. He's like seven years older than me. 
and they gave him, you know, well, butrins and, you know, the benzos. And, you know, after six or months or a year, they would just give him a different one. You know, maybe let's try this wow. one. That one didn't work. And I really watched his personality change. You know, he, he seemed more disconnected from everything, more uh, like isolated. He didn't have the same joy for life. And I think that's kind of still really affected him till this day. It's kind of sad. I wish that... um he had never gotten on those. And so for me, I was just soul searching anything that would be different from that pharmaceutical kind of route simply because I had noticed that in my brother and I knew kind of internally that that wouldn't be the cure because I watched how they played my brother with that whole scheme. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, when I got on the medications initially, this is the thing about medicine that I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want people to take, take the, take like a, a negative connotation away from, like all applications for medicine. Medicine has some good uh, use cases. And like, if you have acute problems, it's very good for that. Like if you have a heart attack or you, you, you know, you break a leg or you're in a car accident, it's good. And even for those short term, like overwhelming panic attacks, they're, you know, I think medications can work for anxiety, like in the short term, right? But it's where the misapplication of medicine and trying to solve these chronic illnesses or chronic diseases with these medications, which are really only symptom management, that's where there's a big mismatch. And that's where it really fails, basically. And But that's the thing about the nature of chronic and modern disease is that most of these things that people are dealing with are developing over time. And there's, uh, there's just a, a different approach that needs to be utilized to, to get at these chronic conditions than, than just, you know, masking what you feel with medications. And that's essentially... All of medicine is sort of oriented around that idea of let's manage symptoms and there's really nothing else that we can do. So for me, um, around like 2012, 2013, um, I came into contact with some people at this facility that I was at, this medical facility to come off of the benzos who had been um, on a mineral balancing program and, and uh and had shown me that like their hair tests and I was kind of intrigued by this. And I was like, this sounds really interesting. And I kind of left that place in Minnesota um, in late 2012 and was really, I was going through post, post acute withdrawal from benzodiazepines. And especially like the withdrawal that I went through was pretty rapid. It was about over seven weeks or so. So had to be medically supervised, had to be put on like phenobarbital and other medications to prevent uh, seizing and, and seizures and just massive overactivity in the brain, you know, because if that happens, you can end up dying. So um, I left that place, you know, I was really happy to be off the medications, but I was going through post-acute withdrawal. I went through acute withdrawal and that was brutal. The people, even the people at the uh, the facility were like, Clark, are you okay? Like they've seen, they've seen everything and they deal with, you know, kind of everything. And even they were like, dude, uh, yeah, are you good? <laughs> are you good? You know, so... <laughs> When I left, um, I was in a bad way and their approach at that facility was kind of alternative and holistic in nature as well, where they were recommending, you know, like high dose vitamin C, intravenous glutathione, you know, and we were doing all sorts of interesting testing to track blood sugar and maybe cryptopyrols in the blood and other things. So it was a forward thinking place, but, you know, I was on all these different supplements, 50 different supplements. And at that point, I felt worse than I ever had before, because when you come off of benzos, there's a massive rebound effect 
that happens uh, on all of the GABA receptors all throughout your body, not just in your brain. And so I ended up being in like post-acute withdrawal for a year and a half after that. But it was around that time I was living in Arizona at that point. It was around that time when um, I had discovered mineral balancing and uh, there was a lady by the name of Pam Killeen. Uh, do you know who she is? No. She comes from like the Weston A. Price kind of background, but she ha- um, and she had a really good book or has a really good book called Addiction, the Hidden Epidemic. And, you know, writing about addiction through the lens of like this Weston Price perspective, uh, which at the time was very interesting to me. And she has this little chapter in her book about hair testing and like the zinc and copper ratio um, and she had been trained by Dr. Wilson. Uh, so that kind of piqued my interest. I knew who Pam was. Uh, she was friends with the lady that ran the, um, facility that I was at and I was reading her book and I was like, this sounds really interesting. I had heard about hair testing and mineral balancing from some other people at this place. Why don't I just email Pam and see like if she's offering, if she has, you know, any slots open for new clients. And it turns out she did. And so I got my first hair test in like January of 2013. Um, and had a, ro- a lot of really interesting things come back on that first test. Yeah, that's amazing. Lucky you, you found someone who was actually uh, actual mineral balancer, kind of not a replacement theory. You know, luckily you found somebody that was actually like a Dr. Pollack, Dr. Wilson guy. So that worked out into your favor. And uh, so what was your experience like with that? You know, going through it initially, um, you know, since Pam worked with Dr. Wilson at that time, I kind of, you know, dug in on his website. Um, you know, we'll get to that maybe later in the, in the, uh, in the chat, but, but, you know, there's a, there was a lot of intriguing information. I was like, this is really interesting. I haven't heard about a lot of these concepts from anyone else, you know, in the world. Um, and I was just basically really intrigued for what this program could do. And so at that point I was on FMLA leave from my work for my job that I'd had at, at a hospital, actually, ironically enough, at that point. Um, and so I wasn't really doing anything. And I just had all this time to like research and um, and do this program. And so, yeah, it was quite remarkable that um, my initial experience getting on the supplements, I had a really low NADK ratio to start out. It was like under one. It was like 0.88, if I remember exactly. And, um, you know, there's specific things that we can do to like manipulate these ratios into balance, like in a very forceful and sort of aggressive manner, which is, um, which is a good thing. It's a benefit, even though the word, I don't know if people like that word, but, but I noticed some pretty significant changes, um, like pretty rapidly. And I was like, Whoa, this, you know, cause the, at the time I was paying Pam 150 bucks or 200 bucks every three, three or four months to get my hair tested. The supplements were like a hundred bucks a month at the time. And I had just gone through years of like dropping, 10,000 here, 20,000 there on all of these different systems and approaches, I was like, holy cow, this approach, which is massively cheaper than anything else I had tried, uh, you know, it's, it's working better than anything else I've ever tried before. And, you know, so like there were, just to give an example, like I, I going through post-acute withdrawal of the benzos, I was having worse panic attacks than, than I had before initially which is the reason why I got on the meds in the first place. And so I, you know, the SBF formula and the Limcoman and the Paramin, those three supplements taken together, like they could pull me out of a panic attack. And I had never been pulled out of a panic attack before on anything else other than a benzo. 
So I was like, whoa, this is really, really powerful. Something is going on here. And so I responded pretty quickly uh, to finally being on the right supplements based on, on the hair analysis parameters. And so I was kind of hooked immediately uh, within that first three months. And I was like, okay, there's really, really something here. And, um, you know, I kind of was, I struggled for like another year and a half on the program. I was still going through post-acute withdrawal. So it was kind of hairy. Like I'd go through big ups and then big downs. Um, when you go through benzo withdrawal, they talk about this in terms of like windows where the, you'll get windows of periods of time when you feel like really good again, like you did before the, the drugs. Um, and so I would get windows of being like, whoa, I feel like my old self. But then, you know, I'd go through like a, uh, early on, I went through a detoxification of a nickel uh, compound and I, I was definitely kind of like jarred by that process. Um, but then after I went through that elimination for the first time, within like the first nine months, I was like, I felt better than I had in a decade. And I was like, there's really something going on here. Um, because at that point, I had had pretty intrusive suicidal thoughts for many years and didn't really know where they were coming from. According to Dr. Wilson at the time and other literature that I had looked at, um, high amounts of nickel, especially in the brain, can cause suicidal thoughts. There's some post-mortem studies looking at people who've committed suicide, looking at their brain tissue, and they, have, they show high levels of nickel in certain regions. And so Dr. Wilson was saying that, you know, nickel is the suicide mineral. It, uh, it can cause suicidal thoughts and can actually cause people to take their own life. And I went through this nickel elimination. It was the first elimination I went through on the program. And um, I had some in intensifying of those thoughts. And then uh, about a month later, all of those thoughts disappeared and I never had them again. And I, I looked back on that like a month after that. So like two months after the elimination and I was like, I don't have suicidal thoughts anymore. And I've been having them every day for the last decade. There is really something going on here. And so like getting that initial feeling of being on the program and like the supplements working better than anything else I had tried and coming out of some of those, the depths of some of the acute phase of the benzo withdrawal, that was a really big uh, incentive for me to keep going. And then I went through this nickel elimination, which was tough, you know, and Pam and others uh, in this space and on, on the program, they tell you about these detoxification symptoms. And um, I went through that, but I got through it. And then I got to this new plateau and I was like, there's really something here. There's something remarkable here. Yeah, that that's very powerful because I think most people, you know, including I know my brother personally more than uh, a lot of people who are on those meds. And one of his biggest things is is the panic attacks. That's what he's mostly afraid of is like when those come yes. on. He's been to the hospital quite a few times. Like he's like, he'll he like, I think I'm dying. Like he'll, ta he'll call my... Yeah, it's crazy. He calls my mom and he's like, you got to come get me and take me to the hospital. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like dead that serious. And it's just like that another panic yeah. attack. It's nothing serious. So for someone, so for someone to hear that, you know, and think, oh, maybe there are like some kind of minerals that will help to maybe balance the nervous system or detox some of these metals. And that will actually calm them down over time, even if they have to push through a little bit of those retracing and detoxification symptoms that arise. But, you know, it's better than, you know, a lifetime of pills. And 
Uh, honestly, from what I gathered from my brother is like he takes the meds, but then he still does have the panic attacks every once in a while or some form of anxiety. So it may mm. work like in that short term, but it's it's obviously not doing the job at the root cause. Yeah, it's nothing. It's doing nothing at the foundational level. And uh, it's really interesting that you mentioned like that um, the way in which your brother kind of like you loop once you go through a panic attack and you don't know what it is. And you don't have someone to explain it to you. Um, and really, you don't have something to bring you out of it physiologically. You start to loop on it because especially for me, after I went through that initial panic attack, I was like, I don't know what happened to me. But something really, really bad happened. And I have no way to even contextualize or know like what that is. And then therefore, I have no tools to like prevent that in the future. So you become hypervigilant. And that's that sympathetic overdrive, you know, fast oxidation, basically, you go into that and you cannot come out of it. You become hyper vigilant, hyper aware, all of your bodily sensations, and it just sort of loops on itself. And it's sort of this idea of a vicious cycle where a lot of different disease processes are initiated or go through this vicious cycle loop where the fact you know you have a panic attack for whatever reason and then you become hyper aware hyper vigilant you become even more obsessed with yourself and like the feelings that you have it sort of spirals out of control and you're in this positive feedback loop this vicious cycle where the mechanisms that the body has to bring you out of like high blood sugar or high blood pressure or higher levels of the stress hormones that's not happening anymore and the actual events that started everything just feed on themselves over and over and over and over. And that was one of the things that mentally really I was very disturbed by because at the time medicine was like, you know, I go to the ER and they're like, you're fine. We did all these blood tests, you know, just go home and get some sleep. And I was like, well, something happened here. I need to know what that was. And they were like, well, we don't know. We don't know either. So just go home and, you know, stop partying, stop drinking, which was good advice for sure. But you become obsessed with like what had happened to you and you can't, you can't stop it basically. Yeah. I'd imagine, you know, you feel powerless. I know within my own story, the mm -hmm. kind of, I never was crazy suicidal, but like when, when I was actually had all of these uh, mercury poisoning and the heavy metals, mercury has been my highest one that I've been eliminating. Probably why I've been feeling half crazy. Cause I heard yeah. that one can be one of the toughest, but, um, I was also moved down to Florida, you know, sobered up, kind of, you know, quit partying, was like, I'm going to get my life together. And we had moved into this house with mold. So I had the mold exposure on top mm -hmm. of the heavy metal exposure that I had already accumulated. And there were periods in there where I was like, dude, I will just drive this fucking car off a cliff. Like I will, like I will literally like, I'll just floor it and just keep going. And, and then you catch yourself and you're like, what what kind of just happened right there? Because I'm like I'm not really suicidal. It's like they just slip in when your when your whole entire system is just way out of whack like that. You have no energy. You know you can't be creative. You can't be productive. So you just feel kind of lost. And I went through that a little bit. Not ever like planning on suicide, but the just like every day. Uh, you know, I had a just like cloud over my head. I couldn't think straight. I had no energy. And you would just think like, how am I even going to push through another day? You know, it's fucking bizarre. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty brutal cycle, you know, and, and, and breaking that cycle is very difficult because, you know, when the stress response gets active, 
when it gets activated, um, you can get trapped in that loop of the stress response. And that has consequences down the line that um, you can kind of think of as like second and third order effects where the stress response will deplete your minerals very, very rapidly. Um, and, you know, we can definitely get into this, um, I think, maybe later in the call, but there's this idea or principle called ionic mimicry, which um, is maybe one of the most foundational concepts in metals toxicology that no one seems to be talking about. No one that I know of has ever talked about this except for Dr. Wilson and Dr. Eck. They gave it a different name, but it's this notion that when your minerals become low or biounavailable or imbalanced against one another in the system, heavy metals bioaccumulate actually in the place of those minerals. So there's deep relationships between like the stress response, the minerals and the metals and sort of the beauty of the hair tissue mineral analysis test that we use in mineral balancing is that we can we can assess all of these things all at one time, um, you know, and it's sort of a brilliant mechanism or tool in the mineral balancing paradigm to use, which I think is maybe another important point that a lot of people who might be talking shit or they don't understand hair testing, they do so because they don't understand HTMA through the lens of mineral balancing. And many, many people, you referenced this in the beginning of the call, run into people who are practitioners who are doing this work using hair analysis, but they don't understand how uh, how to use it because they aren't looking at it through the lens of mineral balancing. And I actually just did a webinar with Dr. Stillman um, about a week ago, yeah, last weekend, where, um, you know, we were kind of uh, plugging our HTMA secrets course, and we, but we were talking about the proper context in which to use HTMA. And if you don't understand it through this lens of mineral balancing and the mineral system, which is really another really another important concept that we can get into, um, you, you won't understand, you won't get HTMA, and you'll just think it's sort of like another diagnostic that's measuring high or low mineral levels. Uh, which you can't do anything with that, essentially. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that. And I've had I've touched on that in other shows as well with uh, Aaron and Susan as well. So if people have been listening, they're probably getting they're probably, I'm, you know, sounding like a broken record where it's like you want to do the mineral balancing, not the replacement theory, is, at least from my experience and what I've been doing as far as the research goes. So since we've if no one's ever listened to any of them other shows, Let's get into like what is HTMA, what's the history of HTMA, because we talk about Eck and Wilson a lot, but I, you're the first person that I've heard who's kind of feel like you've even dug deeper and you've went even further back. Like, where did this all begin? So in, in 1945, there was a medical textbook called The Physiology and Biochemistry of the Skin. And in that medical textbook, there is an author, um, MD, PhD, uh, in dermatology who wrote a chapter on hair and his name was Peter Flesh, MD, PhD. And he was the first guy to ever propose that the hair could be used as a recording filament for uh, measurement of the elements, the essential elements and the toxic elements. And so that was the first instance of that idea ever even being proposed. And that kind of set off a wave of research into hair analysis in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Eck comes onto the scene in this story in the mid-70s, mid and early 70s. Um, but what was done in like the 50s and 60s was very, very interesting. A lot of people think that 
there's nothing like validating um, hair analysis for the measurement of the of the elements. Um, you know, and, and so there's that's confusing to me because there's actually a very deep history to all of this. And after Peter Flesch proposed this idea in the mid 1940s, there was a lot of research that got done in the 50s and 60s, and there were actually some really interesting discoveries based on those initial studies in the 50s and 60s. Um, they actually discovered that uh, zinc was very important for growth, and in um, in like setting of the height in, in certain instances by looking at Egyptian dwarves and the, the hair zinc level, right? So they noticed really low hair zinc levels in these people that were of shorter stature, if that, you know, if that's the PC term to use, but, but, you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know, so in Egyptian dwarves, they, they basically saw really, really low tissue zinc levels in the hair. And so they actually correlated this with their growth problems um, so that was one of the first instances of actually using the hair, uh, to, to correlate it to like a clinical symptom or some endpoint, some clinical endpoint. Um, other research was done in the sixties looking at, um, chromium in diabetics and what they found, and this has sort of been elaborated on in the literature since is that chromium in the hair of diabetics was very, very low in those initial studies. And so that was used as a jumping off point for a lot of other literature looking at chromium and its importance in glucose utilization. So there is a history there that a lot of people are quite unaware of. Um, you know, it's sort of hidden. It's, it's kind of hard to, um, you know, delve into all of this, but it's there, right? I got the book, The Physiology and the Biochemistry of the Skin, and I read the chapter by Peter Flesch where he talks about what the hair is what it's used for, its evolutionary utility, uh, these sorts of things. Uh, and, and it's extremely interesting, but he does propose in that chapter that you can use this to do a nutritional assessment of the elements, basically. Um, and so there is some confusion because people interpret that to mean that we can do a hair analysis and look at the mineral levels in the hair, and that's a direct uh, correlate to the tissue status or the bo the total body burden of a given element, which that is also not true either. Um, so this is where Eck comes into play in like the early 70s, mid 70s. And he starts to uh, see that there's this really interesting test looking at uh, minerals in the hair and toxic metals. And there was a lot of really uh, interesting research sort of going on in tandem in the early 70s that Eck was being influenced by. Um, and so like you may, uh, recall that they removed lead from gasoline in the, uh, late seventies because of some landmark papers done by a couple of researchers by the name of Landrigan and Grandjean looking at the, uh, subclinical effects of lead on neurodevelopment and on kids. And what they noticed in those landmark papers looking at lead is that you, their lead would exert subclinical and lower level effects on the system outside of like acute phase toxicity. So lead could like lower IQ or lead could affect cognition and perception. Lead could affect behavior at lower levels than simply like you getting exposed to a ton of lead and you go to the hospital with encephalopathy in your brain, right? So um, there was a lot of this really interesting research going on at that same time that Eck was more active and... Um, and there was also uh, a group of papers by these two researchers by the name of Hill and Matrone, 
who actually elaborated on uh, initially on this idea of mineral interactions, right? And that's another piece of hair analysis and mineral balancing that a lot of people don't understand like where it comes from or the history of it. And maybe that's why there's a lot of like skepticism and people saying, well, this is BS. Where does this come from? There's a lot of these concepts and ideas that are very well established in the literature, but they're hidden, they're buried, you know, in studies from like five decades ago, you know? So there was this research that Hill and Matrone did where they theorized that minerals and metals with similar physiochemical characteristics like ionic radii, uh, uh, you know, electron uh, configurations in elements, elements that have similar physiochemical characteristics would actually interact in biological systems. And the idea was that the more physiochemically similar elements were, like copper, zinc, and cadmium are all very, very similar, they would actually antagonize each other at the level of uh, the digestive tract and in other tissue compartments in the body, right? So that research was done. They theorized this in the early 70s, Hill and Matrone, these two researchers, and they did a bunch of experiments to confirm that. And that's where this idea of the mineral interactions comes from. There's an even deeper history with the idea of the mineral interactions, but that's more related to like soil science and the work of William Albrecht who did a lot of work at UCLA in like the 1950s, uh, you know, but so Eck was seeing all of this going on, right? He was seeing hair analysis being used. He was looking at this, uh, at this literature of the interactions being very, very important for metabolism of the elements. And then he was looking at like the heavy metals as well and the work of Grant, Grant Jean and Landrigan, um, you know, and, and showing that the metals could exert subclinical lower levels effects beyond the acute phase. And he was putting all of this together along with like the work of Hans Selye. And um, he, he started to really develop this new, I, this new synthesis of uh, this interpretation approach using all of these principles from all these different researchers. And that's sort of where we are today with hair analysis. Um, and, you know, so Eck, Eck really brought together a lot of different things that were pretty well established and elaborated on in the literature, but they're buried and they're actually quite complicated, you know? And so um, there is the history of HTMA. There's the history of the mineral interactions. The, the idea in the first place that the minerals interact and they're doing so in a system is maybe the most important contribution of Dr. Paul Eck. Maybe even more so then, you know, using hair analysis to track the changes in the mineral system. But it's just this idea that the mineral system exists and that in that system, all these elements interact with each other. And if you can balance the whole system, that's what mineral balancing is. It's a focus on the balance of the system and then or it's its focus is on characterizing balance or imbalance in the system and then using our knowledge of nutrient and mineral mineral interactions to balance that system. That's really what mineral balancing is, but it's all done through this lens of the mineral system. And it comes from, you know, very specific uh, places. And, um, you know, the HTMA fits into this perfectly because it's a biopsy test. It's a cellular reading of the minerals over a sort of very specific time cycle. 
which we can get into, which is another really interesting aspect of this. Uh, but it's also measuring the whole mineral system all at one time. And so then we can view it in that manner. It's not, um, it's, so it's not, it's very unlike other systems out there, which are really measuring like single minerals at like a very specific single endpoint, uh, trying to get a sense for like the tissue level of a, of a mineral versus the balance of the minerals in the tissues. That's really, uh, where the special sauce is in mineral balancing. Yeah. Amazing explanation. And I guess we can kind of dive into that a little bit right now. Um, because I love the point of the, what really grabbed my attention was, you know, I had had a lot of blood work and, you know, kind of like we spoke about, it's like, they're like, Hey, you're fine. Go on home. Everything looks good. And I'm like, dude, I feel like I'm fucking literally dying like there, there's no way you know I, I was in there requesting mris and ct scans i was like right. maybe i have a brain tumor tell me i have cancer anything just tell me Same. anything and then i heard you speak about the htma being like a tissue biopsy test where we can get like this three month average and that made a lot of sense to me because i'm like okay that's what you want to know like what's going on in the system over time not just going in and getting your blood work and getting things checked and everything looks gravy maybe your cholesterol is a little high but they don't really do too much you know so maybe we can dig into a little bit about how it is that average and why that's important yep so so there's benefits to the hair test inherent characteristics of the of the due to the nature of hair growth that that give us a lot of advantages over like blood testing and not to say that blood testing isn't useful or you shouldn't use it, but you need to understand these tests in their proper context. Um, you know, measuring things in the blood, you're measuring a transport medium or what's going on with the movement of these elements and molecules in that transport medium. So you can think of the blood as sort of like your highway system, your interstate highway system. Things are getting moved around from tissue site to tissue site in the blood. With the hair, you're directly measuring a tissue. So you can actually make really strong inferences by what's going on in the hair tissue in the other tissues, the other soft tissues of the body. Whereas with the blood, the blood is sort of a separate compartment almost entirely from all the other tissues. So that's a very, very important um, idea. You know, many people who are new to this, they're like, well, can I do blood testing? Is that going to like correlate? It's really not. And, and part of that has to do with the blood touches everything and there are certain parameters in the blood that have to be kept within a very tight range or you can die, right? Like pH has to be kept within a very tight range or, you know, you can die pretty quickly. And so the body will actually rob the tissues of certain of the elements to maintain like blood pH and other uh, important parameters in the blood. So... But the idea here and the notion is that when diseases and conditions, symptoms develop, they're developing at the level of the tissue site. You know, you might have a heart problem or you might have a kidney problem, right? Or you might have weakening of your bones. Those are all problems um, of that particular tissue. So that's where problems, these conditions and diseases kind of come from, or that's how they develop over time. And using the hair to measure a tissue, so measuring it at the tissue level, but then doing so over a long period of time because that's how, you know, the nature of hair growth is such that it grows slowly over time. So you're getting a long-term reading of what's going on in the cells. And that's really 
uh, aside from measuring the mineral system all at that all in that time window, those are the two biggest benefits to HTMA more broadly. And so yeah, there's another amazing, and I want to, yeah, go ahead. There's one other thing there <clears throat> that I think is very important to know because the hair is a tissue. Tissue levels of the minerals will vary much, much more than blood mineral values. So you can, in this way, it's a more sensitive test. You can pick up on changes that occur earlier and you can pick up on changes that occur over a much broader range of the elements. And so there's a much broader range or um, avenue for correction of those elements within this much broader range that they exist in the tissues. So that's something that's kind of confounded a lot of researchers over many years. They have a hard time establishing ideals for minerals in the hair for that reason. Um, you know, and, and so that's, there's a lot of, you know, knocks or negatives that people have pointed out about hair analysis. And maybe we can get into that a little later, but um, there's a lot of explanation for why there may be discrepancies in the literature or other people are talking, you know, kind of out of their ass when it comes to like hair analysis. Yeah. And, you know, the, the literature is one thing, but one part I want to, you know, touch on here is what kind of intrigued me is, you know, I like experiential data as well, you know, and, you know, really what's happening. And if you look into Dr. Paul Eck, he, he seemed like he was just worked around the clock, honestly. And it's not just minerals that he was using. He also gives people in different oxidation states, depending on their metabolism, he gives them separate nutrients, which I kind of was like, wow, that's even interesting. Like, you know, you're taking the mega pan. That's kind of like a multivitamin with fat soluble vitamins and things like that when you're in slow ox. And then you're getting like thyroid complex. It was like some thyroid support. Or you're getting the adrenal support. So and he also did that over. I, if, if I remember correctly, it was like hundreds of thousands of tests. I believe Dr. Paul Eck did. So for it seems like he was probably playing with doses seeing how everything went over time, how that manipulated the entire mineral system. And then another thing I like to note is he pretty much universally found that everybody felt optimal when certain levels were, or certain ratios were really, really strict. Like the, the ratios within the mineral balancing is a lot different than some of the other practitioners I view. I noticed like it's very strict on where the ratios should be. You're not always going to get there living in the modern world, but there's like strict ratios ratios that the Dr. Pollack likes you to be at and then also mineral levels. So maybe we can touch on like really how many tests he did and then how he found like everybody did kind of feel optimal at these certain levels and ratios. Yeah, Eck was prolific and he was a clinician primarily, so he, he wasn't a researcher. So he did a lot of this stuff, um, a lot of his, you know, quote unquote experiments or whatever, um, you know, really in the field basically and with people. And that's actually, you know, maybe an important thing to mention. A lot of like laboratory, you know, ideals and normals are established just by looking at the general population, just by looking at what this person, you know, has in their circulating blood and then, you know, averaging that against hundreds of thousands of people. So it's not like he was doing things out totally out of uh, beyond the pale, you know, so he was still sort of working within the framework of some good science. But he was primarily a clinician. He was very prolific. He, you know, ran upwards of maybe 100,000 hair tests on people in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And so he started to notice trends. And you will, after you run 
that many tests. I, you know, myself, I've looked at over a thousand hair tests in the last couple of years, minimum. You start to notice trends. You start to notice how people respond to things. And that's really where I think the magic of this approach comes in because he tested it on real people. It wasn't tested on rats. It wasn't tested, you know, in a laboratory. He tested it on real people and established a lot of ideals by looking at all of these different tests. And, you know, uh, the ex, his uh, children still run analytical research labs, Nancy and Ken. And, um, you know, last time I was down there in Phoenix um, visiting the lab, we, we would talk about it. I would sit down in Nancy's office and I would be like, tell me everything that you can about Dr. Eck. Um, you know, and she would go through all these crazy stories of, you know, uh, how he had like all these textbooks strewn across his bedroom and he would work until two or three in the morning, uh, you know, and his kids would, they would be up with him, like, you know, kind of just watching him work and watching him rifle through all of these, uh, all of these studies and try to apply the principles that he was reading about in the literature to real world situations. And that, and ultimately he ended up, uh, you know, delineating a lot of these ideals that we see on the hair test and the reference ranges based on looking at really healthy and young athletes in the Phoenix, Arizona area who went to like Arizona State University. Um, you know, so he ran, I don't know, maybe a couple thousand tests or more on a lot of those athletes. And he started to notice where these ideals were. And, and really the ideals are one thing, but then understanding that the mineral ratios are actually more important than just the mineral levels and their relationship to uh, their ideal threshold concentrations, right? This was another really titanic leap forward for hair analysis. Eck was able to establish ideals for the mineral ratios and correlate those mineral ratios with spe with the specific action uh, or, or the cellular action of many hormones. And this is something that is a massive discovery on his part and um, not a lot of people know about, but you can actually look at the hair analysis and specifically the first four elements, calcium, magnesium, sodium, and potassium. You can look at them through the lens of Dr. Hans Selye's work, who elaborated on like the stress response. He coined the phrase stress in like the 1930s. He was a Nobel laureate. I don't know if he won, but he was in that in the conversations for the Nobel uh, Prize in Medicine for many years. But because the, especially with like just respect to the first four elements and their ratios, those first four elements make up 99% of the mineral content in your body. To that end, the body has evolved very intricate and elaborate mechanisms for controlling those first four elements in your tissues. Some of those mechanisms, those underlying mechanisms are hormonal in nature. So like there's a specific adrenal cortical hormone that regulates sodium retention in the tissues, aldosterone. There's a specific adrenal hormone that regulates potassium in your tissues, cortisol, right? And so by understanding the interaction and these underlying control mechanisms for the minerals in the tissues, you can do almost like a complete hormonal panel, almost like a horm total hormonal analysis by looking at these mineral, these bigger mineral levels, but more especially and more importantly, the mineral ratios thereof. And so you can correlate the cellular effect of thyroid hormone 
by looking at this calcium-potassium ratio on a hair analysis. The reason for this is because if you know about biochemistry in the body, the body uses calcium to desensitize the cells to thyroid hormone at the level of the cell. It sensitizes the cells. Potassium sensitizes the cells to thyroid hormone. So by looking at the ratio of calcium to potassium in the tissue hair, you can assess the cellular effect of thyroid hormone and so on and so on. You can look at like the sodium magnesium ratio as a measurement of the adrenal hormones. You can look at the sodium level and that's a measurement of the hormone aldosterone, right? And you're getting, so you're getting a cellular, a reading of the cellular effect of your hormones over this longer period of time. You can do so much more with that um, than you can just by looking at the individual levels and trying to correlate them with the intake of those elements in your diet, which is, that is not what the hair analysis is measuring in any way, shape, or form. Um, it's a measurement, especially those first four, and this is where a lot of confusion comes in. Those first four elements are really a measurement of the cellular effect of the hormones that regulate the, the mineral metabolism in the tissues. Yeah, and it's. I think it's probably a good idea to preach to people. It's like you don't use um, element or relight powder to replenish your sodium potassium ratio, as as people would think. And you know, I didn't know that until I started working with Aaron. Um, you know, like you guys use zinc or a zinc and copper supplement to manipulate the sodium and potassium ratio. Uh, you use manganese, you know, things like that that are sodium synergist. And so, I, as you learn that, and you go, oh, also, I had a really high calcium. Uh, reading, which is pretty common, like everyone's in a calcium shell and got calcification going on, but I still got uh, calcium, you know, three times a day in the paraben supplement. So it's actually way more in depth. And it's, you know, I think it'll take me a couple of years to really be good at reading it, even with knowing you guys, like it's very sophisticated and it's complex. Yes. And that's, you're, you're hinting at a point that I think is critical for people to understand when we try to like raise or lower the tissue level of a mineral, we give synergists or antagonists to that mineral to expedite or speed up that process, right? So in the case of like a low sodium or a low sodium potassium ratio, you still need sodium in the diet, but just getting sodium is not going to be enough to raise the sodium level. You have to raise the sodium level at the level of the adrenal hormones by re-nourishing the adrenals with the B vitamins and in some cases, adrenal glandulars, along with specific nutrients, which are sodium synergists, right? So we're trying to, we're trying to come at this from the angle of the underlying control mechanisms, which are the hormones, re-nourish the adrenals, let's say in adrenal burnout with B vitamins, specific blend of B vitamins, and then like adrenal glandulars. But then if you have like a low sodium potassium ratio, you want to raise the sodium level, uh, you give specific sodium synergists like copper, like manganese, like B6 and vitamin C to help raise it more rapidly and more powerfully in the tissues. And so the having the understanding of the precise interactions that go on with these elements is critical to actually not only understand the test itself, but then understand how to use nutrients strategically to balance the whole system all at once. 
right? You you can try and uh, take this approach of just giving zinc to, to raise a zinc level. That might not always work if you have a low tissue sodium because of zinc's antagonism with sodium, right? And so, and that's actually, you know, people ask me like, where does this come from? Where do these, where does this idea of like zinc lowering sodium come from? It's in the literature. Uh, there's a, some specific studies looking at uh, <laughs> sodium reabsorption in the kidneys and uh, sodium reabsorption in the kidneys goes up dramatically in zinc deficiency states. So they oscillate in uh, in this antagonistic relationship to one another. The brilliance of Dr. Eck was taking into account all of these interactions all at one time so that we can balance all of the mineral parameters all at once. And that's really where the secret and the magic of mineral balancing comes in is we look at the imbalances in the system, but then we use our knowledge of nutrient and mineral interactions to balance all of the parameters at once. And that's really where you start to see these dramatic reversals in health conditions. And really what it's causing at its deepest level is heavy metal detoxification, which is kind of another layer on top of all of these concepts. And it goes back to this uh, concept that we talked about before with ionic mimicry, where when you understand how metals gain access to cells in the first place, through mineral channels and transporters, you can begin to understand that mineral balancing is actually the most potent heavy metal detoxification system on the planet. By far, nothing comes close. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I've experienced that myself. And I guess before we get in, I'm going to want to go have a long section straight about the heavy metals before we dive into that. Um, I guess a lot of people ask, you know, like, why do we need to take so many minerals? Like, why are we so mineral depleted? So maybe we can just touch on that a little bit and then we'll get into the ionic mimicry. Yeah, I mean, the soils, uh, we're growing a lot more food on the same amount of land as we were 100 years ago. So that just by virtue of that. Um, the food is about, you know, 10 times, maybe even more less nutrient dense than it was, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. So this is a problem in and of itself. It's pretty well established in the literature. There's a lot of studies looking at this. I can't remember. There's one author by the name of McCann, I think, who looked at this. There's um, uh, a lot of studies looking at this. There's nutrient depletion in the soils, mineral depletion in the soils. A lot of this has to do with just the volume of food that's being grown, but then a lot of the chemical fertilizers um, and, and other things that are used on the soils deplete uh, the nutritional elements along, along with the processing of the food. Once these foods are harvested and they get processed into all of the different Franken foods that we consider food now, you lose nutrients through the processing. You lose nutrients in like the milling of uh, flowers and, and things of that nature. So there's usually there's like three levels to it, uh, you know, just the volume of the food that's being grown on the same amount of soil, the chemical pesticides and herbicides that are used can deplete nutrients. And then the actual processing of many of these foods, you can lose and leach nutrients from these foods as well. But there's sort of a fourth layer to this, which is that heavy metals are in our environment at a level that is sort of unfathomable to e even to researchers, you know, much less the average person. 
And heavy metals are used basically to sustain civilization in a lot of different ways. And this is critical for nutrients and especially the minerals because the metals are directly antagonistic to many of the mineral elements. And so um, this is sort of, we're sort of dancing around the idea of ionic mimicry, but this interaction between the metals and the minerals is, uh, is another level of why the soils are so nutrient depleted. And it, all of these reasons are a very good rationale for using supplements, right? But we don't want to use them in the way that a lot of other people are using them, throwing a lot of different supplements randomly at a problem or throwing a bunch of other supplements at another problem. Um, you know, we're trying to use the hair analysis and these principles of nutrient and mineral interactions to strategically give you supplements to balance all these important parameters at the same time, while also avoiding giving you too much of something that could create a new imbalance or exacerbate an existing imbalance. So it's quite, you know, <laughs> without being too glib, it's quite the balancing act. <laughs> yeah. And once I started to research a lot of this, it made sense because, you know, people read, you know, whatever literature they're into. And next thing you know, they're taking four, five, 10,000 milligrams of ascorbic acid a day. And, you know, I was in that camp for a while. I was doing, you know, if I felt stress, I would just do like 2000 more milligrams, you know, and then I'd do some later, you know, and I would feel calmer, but then it's like long-term what happens to the system when you're overloading any anything with any specific nutrient, whether it be a vitamin or a mineral is where you're going to find another imbalance. And that's where all this makes sense. And why is the actual balancing of all of the parameters important instead of like, I feel like a lot of people think like they, they research this and they go, well, I think I got some mercury poisoning. I'll just take some, some selenium. Like I'll take 600 micrograms of selenium a day and I'll detox mercury. Why is that not the case? Okay, so you can't you can't really do it that way to get big results because mercury substitutes for multiple elements. All of the individual metals substitute for multiple minerals, right? So mercury can substitute. Yeah, selenium is a huge target for mercury and can substitute for right for selenium, but mercury can substitute for iodine or zinc, right? And so, okay, that's just one element. That's one heavy metal that can substitute for three elements. If you take a look at like aluminum, aluminum can substitute for calcium, for magnesium, for silicon, for um, iron, and potentially for zinc as well, right? So aluminum can substitute for five different elements all at the same time. Uh, mercury, for, mercury can substitute for three. Lead can substitute upwards of like six or seven elements. But most, you know, and so there's all of these different uh, substitutions that can occur, right? So it's never just the case that your mercury is only substituting just for selenium in the body, much less really like, do you know what form uh, that metal is in? Do you know what tissue it's in, right? So there's a level of complexity here that is exponential when you consider this concept of ionic mimicry and how the metals substitute for multiple of the elements. And so it behooves us to balance all of the mineral elements in the system instead of targeting any, any, any individual element. And this triggers elimination of all of your aluminum, right? The aluminum that's substituting for calcium, the aluminum that's substituting for magnesium, 
the aluminum that's substituting for iron and silicon and zinc, right? As you balance all these different parameters, you'll go through an aluminum elimination. Maybe that first aluminum elimination was aluminum that was in your brain that was substituting for iron. Maybe, and this is why we see on the hair analysis and on mineral balancing programs, this is why we see eliminations of like uh, aluminum and then you, the, the test settle downs or settles down and then you go through an elimination of mercury and then you might go through another elimination of aluminum, right? And then it calms down again. These elements, these heavy metals are substituting for wherever the minerals are and for multiple of the minerals all throughout the body. So understanding ionic mimicry helps us to understand the system dynamics and, and how balancing of the system triggers elimination of all of the metal that's substituting for all of these different minerals across the system. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, one thing I wanted to ask you while we're on this topic is by balancing all of the minerals at once, I haven't heard you speak on this. It seems to me from the research I've done is that you're also shifting cell permeability. And I believe, you know, for me, when I've done some, you know, I've, I've been preaching the heavy metals were the cause of everything for like four years. I asked like every doctor that I went to, if I had mercury poisoning, they told me no. And that's the number one metal that's coming out on my hair test. So it's kind of funny that I kind of always knew there was something there, but no one would tell me. And then, mm-hmm. but I think when we, you know, the cell permeability and the cell membrane is like a big focus of people like Dr. Pompa and, you know, he's using a different nutrients to manipulate that. But it seems like you can manipulate that within uh, a mineral balancing program. And then that will obviously allow the metals and minerals to move more fluidly. I, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm still new at all this, but I, that's kind of what I was like grinding my gears on when I was doing some of the research. Yeah, there's two specific parameters on the hair test that we can use to kind of assess cell permeability. The first is the calcium-potassium ratio. The calcium-potassium ratio tells us about um, how, how efficiently thyroid hormone gets in and out of the cells, right? And then the sodium-potassium ratio tells us about the sodium-potassium pumps on the cells, which are responsible for this flow of nutrients in and out of the cells, so wherever there are big imbalances in the calcium-potassium ratio, in either direction, if it's much too low, you're going to have excessive cell permeability. A lot of things are going to be getting into your cells that shouldn't be getting in there, right? And then the reverse is true for a high calcium-potassium ratio. If you have really high calcium, low potassium relative to that, nothing is going to get into the cells that should get in there, right? And so similar principle applies to the sodium-potassium ratio, um, and, and the sodium potassium pumps across the cells, which are pumping nutrients in and out of the cell, basically. Yeah, I, I'm glad that I actually understood that correctly while I was doing the research. I wasn't sure if I was like lost yep. on that. I wanted to pick your brain because it seems like also that's like goes back to the point of where I'm just, you know, substituting x for y you know i'm putting in the selenium Mm -hmm. trying to get rid of the mercury but it's like what if you're not really even absorbing much of that and then better yet you're not focusing on like you know what you're even digesting either because the program the mineral balancing program also like fixes gut function so i feel like i'm actually digesting a lot more and then it might be some of that permeability going on as well where now i'm releasing the metals now i'm absorbing the nutrients as i should be in comparison to when i used to just take all kinds of random minerals and whatever doses you 
know, and I felt a little bit better from that, you know, maybe just fixing some depletion symptoms or whatever, you know, having a magnesium deficiency or whatever. But, you know, overall, nothing ever worked until I really started to try to get the ratios in balance. Right, right, exactly. And that's, you know, that's a, a very cool thing about this program and system is that by balancing those first four elements, you're balancing the cell permeability dynamics, you're balancing energy efficiency, right? And this is a maybe another important idea or concept to highlight, which is that we're not like giving you more energy or we're not taking energy away. We're balancing the energy efficiency dynamics of the cell so that you're producing energy, but you can produce that energy over a longer period of time. And that's really what happens. It's sort of like, you know, running your car um, at a specific uh, speed limit. That's where the optimal uh, or peak energy efficiency sits at, right? Like, you know, maybe 2000 RPMs is like where peak, peak uh, uh, fuel utilization exists. That's kind of how it works in the body because the enzymes, many of the enzymes that are using these minerals as cofactors and as structural components they work at some ideal rate and balancing the first four minerals especially helps to run these enzyme systems at their peak efficiency and at their peak energy efficiency. Yeah, amazing. And I know you wanted to touch on this a little bit and I've always kind of I've told this to my wife a lot of times that you know, you do the research and you look at mercury and you see this laundry list of symptoms and you're like, wow, that's crazy. And then you look at lead and you see the same and you look at aluminum and you see the same. And not a lot of people, I've heard Dr. Chris Shade speak on this, but um, not a lot of people are talking about like, you're kind of like an alloy mixture of metals. And so it's like, if you see one, like mercury, say your mercury level is like giving you like three out of 10 symptoms, but then your, your aluminum as well is giving you another set of symptoms. And so when we provide the body with this mixture of the metals, we can take, you know, two low level kind of exposures and take that all the way up to a 10 because it's, it's in, at least from what I've gathered, it seems like everybody's got this mixture and those in combination are causing more problems than just having one sort of like mercury exposure. Am I right? Exactly. The metals mixture idea is another very important idea in metals toxicology because you're never just exposed to one metal. All of us are exposed to all of these elements. And what's even more, you can dig a little deeper into this idea. Many of the metals come in different forms, right? You've got elemental mercury, inorganic, organic mercury. Same is true for arsenic. You've got arsenite, arsenate, all of these different compounds of these elements. So we're exposed to these elements as mixtures. And in, in the same way that minerals interact with each other, the metals interact with each other as well, sometimes antagonistically, sometimes synergistically, sometimes in an additive fashion or a multiplicative fashion. Meaning when you're exposed to like, let's say mercury and lead, you bioaccumulate mercury and lead, there can be... Um, more effects on inflammatory pathways, uh, or let's say double the effects just by virtue of getting mercury and lead. But some of the elements are multiplicative, uh, or there's exponential effects from being exposed to uh, multiple metals. Like, for instance, cadmium and mercury both affect selenoenzymes and selenium. So you can have a massive reduction in selenoenzyme activity if you're exposed to cadmium and mercury at the same time. 
And that's a major target for many of the molecular mechanisms of metals is this inhibition of many of the enzymes that uh, the minerals run on and are, are really running at some low level. So, but we're exposed in, you know, to maybe break out of some of the dense science, you're exposed to all of these elements in your daily life um, in mixtures. And so you're bioaccumulating them in mixtures and there's, you have different absorption rates for these metals through like inhalation versus uh, versus absorption through the mouth and like in the gut versus dermal absorption as well. So there is a depth to all of this that is not fully appreciated that I I try to get across in these uh, podcast appearances and especially on social media, not only because I think it's fascinating, but it helps us understand to a deeper degree how mineral balancing works. If you understand how metals toxicology works, if you understand ionic mimicry and how metals gain access to cells in the first place through the mineral channels and transporters, it helps you to understand why mineral balancing works as a detoxification modality for these metals. But I think a, a really important point to hit on here is that heavy metals have no known role in the body. None. So you have no underlying control mechanisms to regulate their partitioning, which means like you don't have calcium channels uh, or you don't have lead channels in your cells to take up lead and to send lead to certain areas in the body, right? And so this was a question, this explains sort of to some degree where ionic mimicry comes from, but this is a question that researchers were asking themselves in the 70s and 80s. We know that metals are in certain tissue compartments. How do they get there? right? Because there's no mechanisms for their uptake in the gut and for their partitioning to different areas in the body. This is where ionic mimicry comes from. They discovered that the metals were utilizing mineral channels and transporters, mineral absorptive molecules in the gut, like divalent metal transporter, some of the zinc importer proteins to actually latch onto those proteins and get into the cells, right? That's how they figured out well, these metals are actually sort of hitching a ride to these mineral channels and transporters. And that's how they're getting into the kidneys and the liver and the heart and the brain. Uh, you know, so, you know, I think understanding these concepts at, at, at a little deeper level and really how you're exposed to the metals helps us understand why this approach, why mineral balancing and why using HTMA is such a cool approach. Yeah. And one thing I've heard you speak about before that I think is probably a pretty good point to hammer home is what happens. So, you know, you talked about how they're gaining access there. And then what happens is we have these enzyme binding sites where the mineral basically should be, but instead the body needs something there to hold on to. So it's going to grab whatever's in its environment and what ionic mimicry from what I gathered. And I kind of tried to break it down in simplistic terms. My wife is like, the elements on the periodic table generally will substitute for other metals or minerals that are similar on the periodic table. So when if you were supposed to have a mineral at this enzyme binding site, the body's going to hold on to the metals just because it needs something there. But then what happens is if the mineral is there, you would have 100% function of that enzyme site, which I don't, people don't understand how important enzymes are, but you're just like 
radically just like enzymes are working every millisecond like so many of them unrealistic numbers they're basically from blinking to thinking to talking like everything is involved in enzymes and so when you have the mercury there instead of the mineral well yeah it's 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 serving a purpose it's keeping you alive but maybe 10 20 percent you know in comparison to if the minerals were there and they were repleted you'd have your you know 90 100 function you know and so maybe that's a good point to hammer home too exactly is that the metals, while, you know, I just said, you know, a minute ago, metals are not essential for any biological process. The body can actually make them conditionally essential in the face of a mineral deficiency. And it is for that specific purpose to run an enzyme or protein that needs something to power it in the face of a mineral deficiency. And so going along with the idea that metals are not biodegradable, and this is one of the reasons why they're so toxic, but the fact that the metals hitch a ride through mineral channels and transporters into the body and then actually substitute directly on certain enzymes and proteins and functionally keep those, those things working is another reason why it's very difficult to eliminate these elements. Because if you do not put back that nutritive element that is supposed to be on that enzyme, like let's say zinc on metallothionine, cadmium or mercury can replace zinc on that particular protein. Uh, if you don't put back the zinc and you don't do it strategically with the understanding of how it balances against all these other elements, the body is not going to let go of or release those heavy metals ever. And so it puts a lot of cold water. It puts a lot of cold water on like a lot of the chelating folks, a lot of the chelation space who, you know, obviously they hate us and mineral balancing (laughs) because it throws a lot of cold water on their on their approach. But, but, you know, there's a lot of drawbacks to chelation and they don't recognize this idea or concept of the metal is actually serving a purpose inside of you to some degree. And if you rip it out without uh, attention paid to the mineral that it's replacing, you can actually make a person much, much worse. Um, So yeah, it's really quite fascinating, but you know, I learned that idea. First, not by looking at the literature, but, you know, by reading a lot of stuff on Dr. Wilson's website, the concept of preferred minerals is the way that he phrases it. Yeah, that makes little sense. And uh, one thing you kind of touched on was like forms. And I hear this a lot as a drawback. And I wanted your opinion on mercury specifically. People will say um, if you're detoxing mercury on an HTMA, it's basically just like mercury from fish or within the environment that um, the minerals themselves or HTMA can't get to the mercury from the dental amalgam fillings. What's your thoughts about that? Yeah, the different forms of the of the metals are important, and we aren't distinguishing on the hair test the different forms. Um, that's pretty hard to do, as it stands generally in the field of diagnostics, right? There's a lot of really expensive equipment that you can use to sort of maybe distinguish between like inorganic versus elemental versus organic mercury, like in the environment. You can do that, but because the hair is the hair, right? You can't. Uh, distinguish is like inorganic mercury coming out right now versus organic versus like elemental. But uh, there's no reason to suspect that uh, whatever form of mercury is being eliminated, uh, there's no reason to suspect that any of those forms of mercury wouldn't come out through the hair. There are certain eliminative channels that the metals have an affinity for. 
mercury and like copper and manganese go through the bile uh, and the gallbladder, liver gallbladder axis primarily. But when you go through an elimination, your body is utilizing all of these eliminative channels to get the metal out as quickly as it possibly can, whether it's through the urine or the liver gallbladder axis or through the hair, which is, you know, an extension of the skin basically. But the cycling of the, uh, of the metals in between the forms is a very interesting aspect of metals toxicology. Um, it's less, mm, you can't apply some of the ideas, uh, practically, but understanding maybe the differences in form can help us understand like absorption rates, uh, inhalation versus, uh, absorption in the gut versus dermal contact. Um, a really interesting example to highlight the change between, let's say, mercury is um, mercury gets spewed into the air through the combustion of uh, certain processes like at coal-fired power plants. And that's done with strict controls in Western countries to filter out mercury from getting spewed into the air. But elemental mercury is used in the combustion process um, in many of those coal-fired power plants. Elemental mercury can get spewed into the air and through different reactions with oxygen can get turned into and other uh, molecules can get turned into inorganic mercury in the atmosphere. So you can go from elemental mercury uh, to inorganic mercury in the air where inorganic mercury can then circle the atmosphere in the atmosphere for up to a year where it is then changed and it rains down into the ocean where it then gets changed into methylmercury by fungal microorganisms who are engaging in methylation using methylcobalamin, interestingly enough, B12. Uh, mercury is changed in the ocean by these fungal microorganisms, right? And then there's this process of biomagnification where mercury goes from these fungal microorganisms to small fish, to medium fish, large fish, human beings, and Absorption of methylmercury through the digestive tract and through the gut is very, very high. So understanding these dynamics can be important, right? It, it lends a level of um, scrutiny that you might have in your own life to things that you eat that have methylmercury in them, which we know fish does, right? What's very interesting about these dynamics is that inside the body, these elements are also changed, and what happens inside the body is that methylmercury can be changed through methylation processes and redox reactions into inorganic mercury in the brain. And so following the life cycle or the changes in these elements is very interesting. It also has implications for ionic mimicry, wherein different forms of arsenic have different toxicological profiles but different forms of arsenic utilize different mineral channels and transporters to gain access to cells. So like arsenate uh, utilizes phosphorus transporters to get into the cells. Arsenite, which is a much more toxic form of arsenic, utilizes silicon transporters to get into cells. So the form matters in terms of ionic mimicry, in terms of uh, where the metals get deposited into the body and, and how they get changed and, and thus their ultimate like clinical manifestations, you know. So a lot of that is extremely interesting. 
but um, there's no reason to suspect that you, you know, through mineral balancing, you wouldn't like eliminate inorganic mercury or elemental versus methyl mercury or organic mercury. Yeah, I, I didn't think it made a lot of sense to me. And I'm thinking, you know, like, why wouldn't minerals in and of themselves get access to the brain? Why wouldn't they go in the brain? They're minerals. It's not like it's some foreign object that we got to check the particle size or see if it passes the blood brain barrier. It's like they're just minerals. They're like the basic foundation of life. Well, and that's very true. And it's very interesting that you mentioned the blood brain barrier. Not a lot of people know this. The blood brain barrier evolved in the first place to regulate minerals in the brain. It's not just about keeping toxic substances out. It's about regulating the mineral content in the brain to maintain certain parameters so that they can regulate neurotransmitters in the brain. So a lot of people sort of ask me sometimes, well, how do you get at metals in the brain? The same way that you get at metals in other tissues, the body has very exquisite mechanisms at the level of the blood brain barrier for regulating entry of the minerals into the cells. They have to be bound to something usually to a protein in the blood before they get to the blood brain barrier right? But uh, the minerals are gaining access to your brain through that blood-brain barrier, um, you know, and they're displacing and uh, detoxifying those metals in your brain, just like they would in other tissues. It's a little more, in, it's a little more involved, a little more complicated, but it still uh, follows along that same principle. But, um, you know, the ionic mimicry concept we can maybe extend on uh, a little more, uh, we can understand this through the lens of like certain foods that are metal toxic today that might not have been metal toxic many years ago. Um, let, let's use the example chocolate. of rice. We could do chocolate. We could do rice. Rice is a really good one too uh, because it's a very specific type of crop. And rice is a um, hyper accumulator of silicon. So there are certain plants that have these phytoremediator qualities, they pick up more of certain elements from the soil for whatever reason. It's not fully understood why that is. Uh, but certain of these plants, like the tobacco plant, marijuana, certain strains of marijuana um, plant will take up more cadmium from the soil. Same is true for silicon in rice. If we go back just a minute to what I was talking about with respect to arsenic, and silicon, there's a relationship there, right? And if this plant is a phytoremediator or it sucks up silicon from the soils much more rapidly, theoretically, because arsenic can substitute for silicon, this is exactly why rice is toxic with arsenic nowadays. Because rice is a phytoremediator or it sucks up this silicon to a much greater degree than other elements, it's going to suck up those metal analogs that use the mineral transporters to gain access to cells, right? So there's deep interactions there with this ionic mimicry concept that, that apply to different, uh, different levels of life and different species of life. And that also sort of applies to uh, like the gut microbiome. Uh, there's a really interesting example of how you know, most people know this, but like uh, the use of heavy use of antibiotics can damage the gut microflora in in your gut. And, and that's very important for 
methylation processes and changing methyl mercury into a less toxic form of mercury, right? So if the gut microbiome is impacted by antibiotics, the gut microbiome to some degree influences the change of mercury in between these forms, you can actually enhance the half-life of methylmercury by disturbing the gut microbiota through the use of antibiotics, right? So there's all these very interesting examples and mm, crossover between these fields that's, I think, happening and going to happen a lot more in the future. But studying all of these things in silos is a little easier. Even studying the minerals and the mineral interactions in the body, it's very difficult to do that. But then when you consider that the microbiome affects mineral balance and metal bioaccumulation and half-life of the metals, um, you know, neurotransmitters are affected, the brain is affected, um, all of these things, genes, certain genes actually regulate like uh, zinc and other metal absorptive molecules. Like uh, zinc importer 4, which is this very important molecule at the level of the gut for absorbing zinc, is affected by gene polymorphisms. And this is expressed in, in a really serious condition called acrodermatitis enteropathica, where you have a really hard time absorbing zinc in the diet. That's because of this genetic polymorphism in zinc importer, uh, zinc importer transporter four. Pardon the interruption, I wanna take a quick break to talk about gut health. With all of the research coming out over the last decade, we know exactly how important the gut microbiome actually is for our overall health. If you're anything like me, then you have struggled with tons and tons of gut issues. I grew up on a lot of different antibiotics. As I got older, I did a lot of partying, drugs, alcohol, standard American diet, yada, yada, yada. Fast forward, I had chronic mold toxicity in line. After that, I really couldn't get my gut to function properly. I spent tons and tons of money on different kefirs, yogurts, probiotics, different things that really didn't seem to work. That is until I found Just Thrive. It's a 100% spore-based probiotic that arrives 100% alive in your gut for maximum impact. It has a thousand times better survivability versus other leading probiotics. It helps support digestive, immune, and total body health. For me, it really helped to beat bloating, gas, constipation, and diarrhea and it is even clinically proven to address leaky gut in just 30 days. So what I do is I take two caps with my largest meal and it really helps to improve nutrient absorption as well. And they are backed by a 100% money back guarantee. So for if any reason it doesn't work for you, no questions asked, you can get a refund. If you wanna try out Just Thrive Spore-Based Probiotics, go over to Just Thrive Health and use code ITP15 for 15% off at the checkout. If you're anything like me in the health and optimization space, you're not only looking for which supplements may make you feel optimal, but also different technologies. The problem with most technologies on the market is they can really burn a hole in your pocket. If you are looking for the most affordable, but yet yet highly effective technologies that help promote detoxification, better sleep, mitochondria function, immune function, look no further than Therasage. I have their portable infrared sauna and I am willing to put that sauna against any other sauna on the market. It heats up quickly. I get an amazing sweat. I've been in some of these really, really expensive saunas and I prefer my Therathage sauna. 
the new addition that I have in my home is the Therasage PEMF mat. This is a game changer. A lot of people who are dealing with chronic illness and autoimmune conditions could really benefit for at-home PEMF. When you're trying to do PEMF out at a clinic, it can charge like 30, 60, sometimes $100 per session. Therasage has just dropped the most affordable PEMF mat on the market. You can use it daily. It has a TENS mat. It has red light. It's a heating pad. My wife is absolutely obsessed with this thing. It has just brought more energy, mental clarity, and all around overall well-being. I gave up my morning meditation recently and just started laying on the PEMF mat. It's such a great addition to have that with the sauna. The PEMF will help you to release a lot of the toxins and then you can sweat those out via the sauna and you will just feel rejuvenated. So if you wanna try out any of the Therasage products, you can use the code Kaufman10. I will link to their website in the show notes. They have the most amazing affordable technology biohacks on the planet. Yeah. Do you think um, genetics has any basis around anything? Or are you more of kind of like uh, an epigenetics guy? It seems like you're more of an epigenetics guy, kind of get all the toxins out of the way. Every, you know, everything will kind of bring back into balance, you know, and my idea, you know, I had Pansner on the show. I know we're both good friends with uh, Tyler Pan. He's a great guy. And my, my thought around it was, yeah, he's amazing. Um, you know, what I explained to him, my, at least my thesis around this is like, you know, maybe 50 years ago, maybe even longer. I don't know. Like epigenetics was a lot easier. I think you used to be able to just like eat paleo or eat whatever, you know, get, get really healthy, do some exercise, some movement, be over, you know, be relatively happy and your epigenetics would be, would turn off your bad genes. But nowadays, it's not the same. You don't just change your diet in 2023 after 30 years of eating fucking McDonald's and go, okay, now all my epigenetic, you know, my epigenetics are great. They're running fine. I think that we're have such a toxic buildup that the only way to really get to that epigenetic level is to remove all the, you know, toxic exposures and detox over time. What's your thoughts around that? There's a bi-directional relationship. I, I don't, um, I don't 100% believe that everything is epigenetics or everything is mediated at the level of the minerals because there are certain genetic factors that influence your body's ability to absorb certain of the of the minerals. And zinc importer four is a very good example of this. So there is a, a genetic influence. I think what's gone on, especially in the last 50 years, is medicine was much more focused in on genes 50 years ago. And that's been the prevailing wisdom for many, many years up to maybe the last 10 or 20 years where the pendulum is swinging in the other direction and people are saying, no, 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 everything is epigenetic. Everything is epigenetic. Genes don't matter at all. So there's a sort of overreaction, I think, to this first initial uh, paradigm, which said that everything is genetic. Now, every, now people are saying everything is epigenetic. I don't think that that's true either. There's a similar phenomenon that you can witness in uh, when you look at like um, certain groups that focus on individual elements, individual minerals or vitamins, when there's new research that comes out looking at like the beneficial properties of vitamin C or like how selenium works in the immune system or how copper is beneficial for X, Y, Z, you see people go on this train where they go, copper is all, that's the only thing that matters. I'm going to take a hundred milligrams of copper every day because there's this new research that points to its beneficial effects. And it forgets the context of the whole system of the body at the system level where genes are operating, 
right, at some important level, but also epigenetics is very important. And when we consider that, you know, what is DNA even made of? Nitrogen, four sugar molecules, and the essential element, phosphorus, right? Genes or DNA is literally made of this essential element, phosphorus. So I think that there's going to be in the future some wild interactions that we don't know about now that are taking place at the gene level between the genes, between the minerals, between the metals. There's a lot of really interesting literature looking at how metals can cause certain of the, these quote-unquote genetic polymorphisms. So there's, there's definitely um, a lot going on there, but I, I think that genetics plays a role. Minerals and the mineral balance plays a role, but they're interacting with each other at all times. It's never one or the other. Yeah, if, over time, if that could get figured out, how to maybe supplement based on a very specific like genetic mm -hmm. protocol with someone like Panzer, who's really got it like dialed in, and then like a mineral right. balancing protocol that you might get to an ultimate level if those two could. It would take a lot of work, you know, because you know how the you know he might recommend something that you think might change a ratio. So it would be definitely kind of maybe difficult to bounce back and forth with each different um, client, but that might be the ultimate, you know, goal right there. That is the ultimate goal, I think, eventually, and um, you know, really tying together all these fields, right? Looking at the gut microbiome, a lot of people, you know, they've been looking at the gut microbiome for the last ten or fifteen years very intently. And there's a lot of cool discoveries coming from that field, but right, people get myopic about it. And they say the gut microbiome, all diseases begin in the gut. It's all about the microflora in the gut. Not really exactly. There's these interactions between the genetic factors and, uh, and the metals and the minerals. So eventually at some point, you know, we'll get there, but, um, you know, there's a lot of research to be done. There's a lot of work to be done in all of these fields and then really tying them together um, is is going to be very important, but a, a very, very big task for sure. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to get the metals out of the way. I mean, I, hopefully I've hammered that home enough for people like those have to get out of the way. I, you know, that should be like your bait. Like I've been trying to tell people who kind of ask me lately, you know, cause they listen to my podcast and they've seen like all these other crazy line protocols i've done and combo and psychedelics and whatever and it's like i think you have to get the metals out of the way start there do that over time maybe a couple years and then like maybe see if you have something lingering or tweak something change you know a little something here or there try a different supplement it here and there add in a few things but you know stay make sure you stay testing so that you're not knocking something out of balance as well but it's like i feel like the core should be like the mineral balancing and then if you want to do anything else because as long as the metals are there it's you know it's going to be tough to really see i i mean from myself i would try all these fringe supplements and suppositories and ivs and nad and and it's like with the metals there you kind of like don't really feel that much different you might get a little boost of energy but it kind of goes away so it's like if the metals are still in the way you know then you're going to have a hard time seeing what other protocol really works for you anyways whether that's based on genetics or not i think a lot of this comes down to discernment of the the metal uh ubiquity in the environment if we look at a lot of modern chronic diseases um a lot of them are vague and have exponentially risen in the last hundred years along with that rise in heavy metal uh, environmental contamination. So um, there may be some 
you know, obviously Tyler does great work and he's a good friend of mine, uh, you know, but we might disagree on some stuff here. I think there is a genetic component, but I think there's much more work to be done on the metal front because the metals are tracking a lot. I really believe the metals are causing a lot of the chronic conditions um, just because we're seeing their ubiquitous use in the environment go up at the exact same time that the mineral depletion is occurring in the soils and where we're seeing all of these weird chronic conditions uh, come up that people really can't solve, seemingly. Yeah, when it comes to the soil, I wonder if it's also due to a uh, mineral depleted, you know, monocropping, you know, what, uh, what would the metals, what would happen if the metals were present in like a biodynamic farm or like a regenerative mm-hmm. farm where they grew some of these bioremediator style plants, would they actually uptake the metal or similar to this concept? Would they leave the metal for the more beneficial mineral, just like we do in our body? That's an interesting idea. You know, what they're trying to do in the environment right now is use phytoremediation as a key strategy to basically leach metals from the soils that are that are now there, right? And this goes to this idea of metals are not biodegradable. So they don't just degrade over like a couple of years. There's like the half-life of some of these metals, um, there's like an isotope of nickel that has a half-life of 92 years in like the human body. Could be even more in the soils and wow. in other other ecosystems, right? Certainly. So the metals are not biodegradable. So you can't just destroy them. You can't burn them. You can't incinerate them. But you can use certain crops in regions locally to suck up a lot of the metals that might be really ubiquitous in certain soils. And there's um, another reason why arsenic is so prominent in a lot of the rice that's grown in America, especially, is that a lot of the rice fields are sort of superimposed or put on top of these old cotton fields that used to be sprayed with a lot of arsenic, right? So mm. um, you, you could, in theory, use certain plants, phytoremediators, uh, to deal with this problem, but it's still very, very difficult. Um, in the same way that you have to maintain a soil balance of the minerals uh, or soil, a balance of the, the minerals in the body, you have to maintain that in the soils as well for their own health and fertility, so it's a very delicate balancing act the, you know, the biggest issue I think right now is that governments and big uh, organizations at the, uh, at the international level don't really care about this problem. Um, and so putting a huge dent in it, you really have to do it at the individual level. But like the FDA right now, they don't really recognize aluminum as a neurotoxic agent even. Um, you know, so aluminum is approved for use in a lot of different foods, cosmetic products, you know, table salts, antiperspirants in the water supply. So there has to be a recognition of the problem of metal ubiquity in the environment in the first place before we can even begin to go down this road or rabbit hole of phytoremediation in certain areas. Um, you know, there's a, a bunch of literature. I've said this quite a few times to people on social media and and consults, but there's a lot of really interesting literature looking at heavy metal deposition in remote locations around the world. Um, And I talked about this a little bit on Matt Blackburn's podcast, where there was this really interesting guy who um, he's a researcher, but also doubles as a mountain climber in his free time. And he took his group of graduate students 20,000 feet up on Everest and 
he, they took snow and soil samples 20,000 feet up on Everest to look at the metal content in the snow and soil samples. And he found high levels of cadmium and really high levels of arsenic, you know, even, even at 20,000 feet up on Everest. So when you understand this metal ubiquity problem in the environment, um, I think it puts, you know, what we focus on in a different light. Um, and why I think it, it makes metals focusing in on metals and mineral balance a lot more important uh, than anything else that you can focus on. Yeah, it you know, and that's a remote location, so it should be pristine. One would think, you know, people think, oh, I can just move out, you know, into the get me twenty acres out, you know, outside of the city, and I'm going to be fine. And it's really not the case that you know, from the chemtrails spring, I believe it's aluminum to water supply for sure. I mean, it's really hard to get away from. We, you know, we didn't really touch on chocolate, but you talked about rice. I mean, it's in all the foods, it's in your water, and then they're not biodegradable and they're not going anywhere. So it's like the only way to really be protective is to figure out, you know, how do we get this mineral system back in place? Because Mm -hmm. that's really how you're going to be proactive because you're mineral depleted from the food. And then also the metals are just super high in the environment. So your protective mechanism is, it sucks to say, but you're going to take minerals three times a day, in my opinion. Yep, exactly. It's a, you know, it's a very good rationale for supplementing. Um, I was always of the mind that like when my health was bad, I will literally do anything to get it back. So to me, taking some supplements three times a day for a while, that's a great trade-off. If that's all I have to do, obviously, I think, you know, we recommend in mineral balancing, you know, specific diets, modified paleo. So you eat a good diet as well. But to me, that's really not that difficult. And, you know, if you're in a situation where your health is poor, I mean, if all you have to do is pop some pills and maybe change your diet, you need to do, you need to just get over it. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's kind of harsh to say, but like, get over it. It's not that hard. And you're, you're lucky. You're, you're blessed to even come into contact with some of this knowledge. Um, that it, it's like when I was getting into this, I was like, that's easy. That's way easier than everything else I've done. Um, I'll do that. No problem. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 goes two ways for people who would think like i don't need any supplements it seems like a lot but for a lot of us who actually had a chronic condition and i always say that i'm super glad honestly that i got it when i was like 30 31 you know started feeling really off because then i realized like yo this is way too early this isn't just like natural aging which i think if it started Uh, to happen to you like slowly in your 50s or 60s you might just kind of chalk it up to like oh i'm losing a little memory or i don't really have the energy to play with my grandkids i think you would really just consider that aging but so i feel very blessed looking back it was fucking terrible but i feel blessed that it happened to me when it did because i knew enough to go this is not what 30 year olds feel like like this is terrible so and so for the people who've been through a lot like i have and seen the doctors like you have it's really not that crazy and it's cheaper than most any other protocol that i've done so i highly recommend people try it out for sure yeah and and i mean you Uh, know what you're saying there i think is really really important there's a blessing to maybe losing your health when you're younger, because especially if you had it when you were even younger, you go, you have some frame of reference for being healthy and you're like, you're not going to tolerate it and you'll do anything to get back your health. That was kind of how it was for me, where when I was young, I grew up really healthy. I was an athlete, did really, really well in school, had all these things going for me. And then things went haywire in my late teens and early twenties. 
I was like, whoa, I lost my health very rapidly. And I was like, I, I have a reference for, you know, being high vitality and having a lot of health. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to get back to that moment. Some people don't have that. And, you know, I think maybe it is important to have some empathy for those people that have gone their entire lives and have never felt good. And so it can make it really difficult when you get on a mineral balancing program, when you or I like tell your client, you could feel worse before you feel better. They're like, well, I already feel worse all the time. Is it really worth it? You know, um, so if you don't have that frame of reference for or vision for where you want to go or reference for where you've been before, that's really, really difficult to deal with. Um, plus, I understand a lot of the skepticism about just taking supplements more randomly. 98% of the other supplement protocols and regimes that are out there are BS. They don't work and they're not taking into account how all these nutrient and mineral interactions take place. So for that reason, a lot of people have been burned by taking supplements as well, which I hope maybe if people take anything else away from this, it's that we're using supplements very strategically and with very precise notions for how these elements interact to balance your mineral system and trigger release of the heavy metals. It's a much more precise and strategic way of recommending supplements, right? So the supplements that you do take are going to actually go a lot further than taking like, you know, a shitload of vitamin C for some indiscriminate period of time. Or, you know, I'm going to take a little bit of zinc because it's good for COVID. Or I heard that like selenium is good for the immune system. So I guess I'll just take some of that for some indiscriminate period of time as well, you know? So there's uh, I, I think that there's definitely a reason why people feel the way that they do. And I, I was one of those people. So it's good to, I think, mention that and uh, empathize to some degree with it. Yeah, absolutely. I want to circle back around to something. We kind of got onto the blood-brain barrier and neurotransmitters a little bit. And I think this is really important because I, although I go up and down right now because I'm still in that first year where you can kind of have the detox mm -hmm. symptoms, but when I feel good, I f actually feel really good, like better than I have maybe even when I was healthy before I got sick. So I'm kind of like, what is the link there with how the minerals play with the um, neurotransmitters and just how you feel your overall mood? Yeah, there's a, there's an entire field that I think could be devoted to like the neuroscience of the metals and the minerals. Um, so at the level of the neurotransmitters, many of the minerals are work to either agonize, antagonize, or synergize many of the, uh, neurotransmitters. And so to the extent that the metals can replace the minerals, sometimes directly, sometimes on enzy enzymes that regulate the neurotransmitters, you can have profound psychological effects, behavioral effects, uh, cognitive effects, uh, and mood effects from the metals. So, you know, there's a couple of specific examples we can talk about here, but like lead can substitute for calcium all throughout the body. But that also applies to that substitution in the brain. And in the brain, there's a couple of enzymes that regulate uh, calcium and calcium-dependent processes, calcium-dependent neurotransmitters like acetylcholine. So these two enzymes called calmodulin and protein kinase C are modulated by or run by calcium. When lead replaces calcium, it affects the activity of those enzymes, which affects acetylcholine downstream. 
Acetylcholine is your brain's main focus neurotransmitter. So if there are issues with uh, those enzymes because of the lead calcium substitution on the front end, you can end up with attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity, lowered IQ because you can't sit there and you can't focus. Your acetylcholine doesn't work. This is actually one of the precise mechanisms wherein lead lowers IQ and can cause ADHD. So there's all sorts of interesting theories about how that affects um, even other processes that are mediated at the level of behavior. Like um, we know from looking at certain observational studies that lead and cadmium can cause violence and violent episodes. And they don't know exactly why that is. Um, but I was talking to a researcher mm, about a year and a half ago. Her name was Christy Bridges. She runs a lab at Mercer University uh, that looks at like mercury and cadmium toxicity in the kidney. And we were talking about this. <clears throat> I wanted to get her opinion on it. And she and others in this space think that the lowered IQ and the lowered um, attention span can lead to violent outcomes because you can't reason through your actions and behavior many steps ahead, right? So you become much more impulsive as a result of the lowered IQ. And then it can lead to, like, if you get triggered by something, there's no prefrontal inhibition on like, you know, okay, this person triggered me. I'm just going to fight them right now. Or I'm going to steal something. There's none of that inhibition that goes on because of the lead, right? So there's a lot of specific clinical outcomes that can result from lead toxicity in the brain. That's just one of the elements. And that's studied, you know, kind of in a silo. Um, let's consider for a moment the metals mixture idea. Many of the different metals can get deposited into the brain all at the same time. And you can end up with a lot of different weird cognitive impairments, lowered IQ, you know, in extreme cases, neurological uh, um, disorders and conditions can can be the result of the mixtures and stuff. But the way that it works is that normally there will be behavioral effects first and maybe mood effects, cognitive deficits. And then as that um, as that progresses over time, maybe your body and brain is weakened from resisting more bioaccumulation of those elements um, that will lead to more bioaccumulation of the metals. And then you might develop a full blown like condition like uh, you know, ALS or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's right down the line. But uh, a very important principle of metals in the brain is that they, they cause behavioral decrements and, and cognitive effects first. And then down the line, you might end up with, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia or whatever. So in some sense, you can use these behavioral decrements and impairments in cognition um, as like early warning signs for metal toxicity. Right. And so that's a really cool implication of uh, of metals in the brain uh, for researchers and clinicians alike. But then also if we look at like mercury, mercury in the brain is very interesting. Mercury acts like an SSRI in between NMDA receptors. And what I mean by this is that mercury can block the reuptake of glutamate in between presynaptic and postsynaptic neurons in the brain. So in the same way that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors inhibit reuptake of serotonin 
from that presynaptic neuron. A similar thing can happen in between NMDA receptors and glutamate with mercury. Mercury keeps the glutamate more active in between those synapses, and this can lead to a bunch of downstream consequences over stimulatory disorders, insomnia, OCD, anxiety, which we know mercury can cause. And it sounds like you have experienced that uh, yourself in your own life. Oh, yeah. You, you explained me to a T. Um, you mix that cadmium and that mercury with a little bit of Adderall and 10 drinks. I was, we were going to fight. <laughs> so, I mean, you, 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 you know, you catch me at the bar with that, with that, uh, mixture of metals and, you know, one little, I was really, really chill, honestly, but I had these, I can look back and think of these like moments where like, I would just, I'm calm 90 something percent of the time. And then, but like when I got triggered, it was, ah, like it was like, whether well, some kind of argument or a fight or whatever, you know, I got tased one time and went to jail, was in this giant bar fight, you know, like fucking just, I think it just made me a little bit more like into criminal activity and, you know, just in a little bit more, just like reckless, you know, looking back like it. And as I detox some of them, I have a lot less of them kind of like looking back on it, like, fuck, I, maybe I was just metal toxic the whole time. And then mm-hmm. it got to a point, you know, through the partying and through just being too reckless where I just broke down all completely. And then after that, I couldn't even really tolerate even cannabis i couldn't really tolerate alcohol everything just like affected me once i got so bad and that's probably a good point to kind of maybe segue into like people think that like they have to have this like extreme exposure like you know some huffing gasoline or like lead paint but really the metals just kind of like have these mini accumulations over time and you may not actually get the full symptoms until way down the line but there are you know you kind of alluded to like these kind of warning signs like oh is your behavior a little different are you being a little bit more reckless are you noticing you know depressive states like those are definitely signs and symptoms that I think some people they overlook or they do like me, they use cannabis and alcohol, things that are going to make your minerals even depleted more. So maybe we could talk about how the metals actually just build up and you might not have that bad of symptoms, but unless you get it all the way, you know, get to a really severe state. That's a very, very important point about the nature of metal toxicity and how we're exposed to metals nowadays. Um, Because metals are not biodegradable, when you accumulate a little bit of a metal, that metal is going to take a very long time to leave your body. If you are constantly re-exposed through these low-level food, air, and water exposure vectors, the metals are going to bioaccumulate slowly over time. And what this leads to is what they call the latency effect in the literature, where you're accumulating these metals very, very slowly over time multiple of them through multiple mineral channels and transporters. And the thing is, is that you won't notice a clinical effect from the exposure of these metals, sometimes a decade or more into the future. And so when you accumulate cadmium or mercury, let's say when you're a young kid, right? Or when you're getting pumped filled uh, of vaccines. Are we allowed to say that on this uh, podcast? (laughs) Um, Yeah, go ahead. Okay, sweet. So we can be honest. Uh, when you're getting pumped filled with these <laughs> franken vaccines uh, as, a, as an infant, if your mineral status is pretty good in utero, you might accumulate those metals, but there's not going to be any symptomological manifestation for 10 to 15 years. 
Maybe when you're a teenager, you develop an anxiety disorder because the metals were there from the initial exposure and you've been slowly accumulating them over time, over that period of time where you were out of your mom's womb and in the environment where you're getting exposed at a low level, right? So the latency period and the fact that these metals are not biodegradable and you're getting exposed to them chronically over time, slowly over time, leads to exactly what you're talking about is you are not going to notice at any level of your perception that you're accumulating these metals until a decade or more into the future when you have like kidney problems, right? Uh, or you have like this anxiety disorder that might get triggered by something. That's another thing that's very complicated about all of this. You still need a trigger for something, right? But metals can actually lower the activa activation potential for like the stress response. So you might, at, at like some level, you might be a very chill person if metals build up over, over time enough beyond a certain threshold, activation of the stress response is going to happen much more quickly, much more rapidly at increasingly lower triggering levels. So someone might call you a name or something. And like 10 years ago, you were like, whatever, bro, I don't care. You know, whatever. 10 years later, if you have a lot of cadmium or a lot of lead in your brain, you're going to be like, what the fuck did you just say to me? You know, there's going to be that sort of response that's different. And it's the thing about it is that it's subtle and it's subclinical. You cannot measure that with traditional medical testing. But this is why going back to using the hair test, the hair test is so useful. We can use not only like high levels of the metals as like a biomarker for toxicity. We can use the poor eliminator concept. Very low levels of the metals can indicate toxicity, but we can use mineral ratios as biomarkers for metal toxicity as well because of the way that the metals substitute for the minerals. So you need to use a test like this, really the hair test, to track these subclinical accumulations that occur slowly over time if you're really going to have a chance to deal with this in any meaningful way. Yeah. And one thing that just came to mind is where I think people, they get confused because they think everything's like regulated and um, this, this chemical they use in their house is deemed as safe. And this, you know, this amount of aluminum and baking powder or baking soda or whatever is deemed as safe. And it's like, okay, when everything has a very tiny amount, and you're using a hundred of them a week. Think about where, like, if they put all, if you grab everything in your house, your water, your, you know, your makeup, your, you know, chemical supplies, and then you put that into a thing and ask them to test if all of that was safe, I bet you not. It would be much higher than the level. And then it's still at a low enough dose where it's doing exactly what we're talking about here, where it just builds over time. And sometimes, I, you know, the conspiracy theorist comes out of me and is like, is this like a planned attack? Or is it just the simple fact that metals are very, very, they make everything easier. Like we need them. We want all this technology. We want cookware. We want things, you know, we need to build things. We need these like coal burning power plants. Like I go back and forth between like, is this like a device plan to make everyone sick and dependent on pharma? Or is it just the fact that it's super simplistic? We're just advancing its technology. Like what's your thoughts around that? Um, it's, it's tough to know. I do think that a lot of it is, uh, intentional to be quite honest. 
Um, you know, at the level of governments, they know that metals are a huge problem. But, you know, is it the fact that industry is paying them off to not care? Um, it could be something of that nature, I think, that's going on. But, um, you know, it, it's really difficult to, to ascertain. Is it intentional? Is it just malevolence? Because I think that at the level of governments, um, you know, a lot of people that go into that line of work are extremely incompetent. So they're incentivized to not get results. So in some ways, uh, like if a political problem exists over time, that's really, really good for the politicians because they can just promise that they'll solve it at every new election cycle. Right. So they're not really incentivized <laughs> to solve those problems anyway. So I think it's a mixture of, uh, it is a mixture of, um, malevolence and incompetence, but to what degree, you know, I don't know. I've seen enough literature looking at heavy metals in the environment and how ubiquitously they're used that I do tend to lean on the uh, conspiratorial side where it's like they, they, there's no abatement whatsoever in the use of these metals. They know that they're not biodegradable. So they're accumulating in the environment year over year. Cadmium that was used in the environment or lead that was in the environment 70 years ago from getting spewed into the air by gasoline fumes, that lead is still there and it's accumulating every year through the use of all of these lead pesticides and, and other things as well. Lead is still used in the jet fuel uh, in planes as an anti-knocking agent. They took it out of the gasoline of cars, which is good, but it's still, these elements are still really used at levels that are unfathomable. And, it, and it's there's a new layer to the problem because a lot of countries are trying to industrialize like America and like the West, um, most notably China and India, and they could care less about these uh, these pollution problems. Yeah, they don't even have really any strict regulations around like, don't they use like, you can use like scrubbers, right? To, to kind of like catch some of the metals and some of the toxicants, but like in China and India, they don't give a shit about that. They don't at all. There's no quality controls, um, you know, so that's definitely a, a pretty big problem. And then that just doesn't end up in China. Obviously, that that migrates throughout the world and then it goes in the ocean and, you know, it rains down here and rains down there. People think like, oh, that's just over in China. But that's really not the case. I feel like that goes globally, especially when it's not biodegradable. It's a global problem. And going back to that mercury example where mercury gets spewed into the air as elemental mercury, it gets changed in the air into inorganic mercury where it can actually hover in the atmosphere for up, up to a year and then it rains down let's say in like the North pole or in Canada or in Texas, Um, you know, so heavy metals are a global problem. They're a real environmental problem. Whereas other environmental problems are maybe not so much real, Uh, but the heavy metal problem is. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Do you think we um, touched enough on the heavy metals before I switch it over? You got anything last minute things you want to say? I kind of wanted to jump into um, similar but different is how people can have like toxic forms of actual minerals. So people only think that they um, are going to release, um, you know, lead, mercury, and cadmium. But what about these like toxic forms of minerals, unless you have anything else you want to add on the heavy metal, the toxic metal piece? No, I think we, we buttoned that up pretty good. Uh, we hammered that home. Um, you know, I think heavy metals are the single most important human health problem out there. I said this on Matt Blackburn's podcast. It's creating... Um, 
you know, it's really creating a lot of the modern health conditions and it's really responsible for overwhelming our medical system to the degree it is now. And, and it, it really is going, it's on pace to bankrupt um, a lot of Western nations, especially if they engage in all of these crazy spending habits that they are now with these foreign wars, uh, you know, not to get too political, but, you know, hint, hint, um, you know, so, so yeah, I think focusing in on that problem um, on the individual level is really what you should do now. I, I have no hope for any uh, intervention at the governmental or international level of this problem. So you have to focus on yourself, your family, your, your friends, your immediate circle, do what you can to eliminate metals, get on a mineral balancing program, use sauna therapy, other detoxification modalities are really good. Uh, but you have to focus on that through, through that or on that level. Yeah, I guess we could touch on that a little bit. The the coffee enemas for sure are yep. kind of crucial. I had a buddy who tried to do the program for a few months without the enemas and kind of just felt awful, you know, and gave up on it. So maybe we can touch on a few of the, you know, I've been doing the reflexology once every two weeks, which I've really been enjoying. I feel like that speeds up the protocol. I don't know if you ever got into that. I'm doing the 100%. enemas every day, the sauna, all these like extra um protocols we do on the side really make a lot of sense, which I feel like when you look at Dr. Paul X work, it wasn't really a thing, but now that we're so toxic that it's almost like you have to do it. Yeah. And that, that speaks to the contribution of Dr. Wilson to a, a lot of this, right. And his, um, his work. And, you know, sometimes people are a little queasy about him and his work. And I understand that reticence there, but um, he, he's done quite a bit to add to the mineral balancing protocols for people that don't know, Dr. X started all of this with hair analysis, using hair analysis in this particular way to achieve the goal of mineral balancing. Um, and Dr. Wilson trained with Dr. Eck for 14 or 15 years directly after Dr. Eck passed. Dr. Wilson started to add a lot of these things like the use of the near-infrared sauna, the coffee enemas, these other modalities, uh, which really were trying to target the organs of elimination while we're doing the mineral balancing at the same time, you know, and a lot of people are talking about like opening up your detox pathways, you know, in kind of like a woo woo way. Um, I, there's a lot more tangible way that I think you can think about it where the organs of elimination, the organs that are responsible for eliminating those metals when you come into contact with them are your liver, your kidneys and your skin slash hair. So anything that we can do to improve the organs of elimination is going to improve dramatically the detoxification experience. As you mobilize metals from tissue storage sites, you can experience detoxification symptoms that are pretty ugly and uncomfortable. And so if your liver and kidneys and skin are kind of clogged up or backed up, oftentimes because they're loaded up with metals of themselves, that can really slow down detoxification um, it doesn't make it dangerous like chelating uh, approaches where you can just mobilize metals and they can redeposit in other more critical tissue sites. But it's going to make the detoxification experience much worse if you don't do the coffee enemas, if you don't do the sauna, you know, if you don't do the chiropractic work and the reflexology as well. So just to give like a concrete example, because we can talk about this stuff in the abstract until we're blue in the face, but I like to get into the concrete examples like... Mercury is eliminated through glutathione conjugates. 
glutathione S-transferase, and there's another glutathione conjugate, which is mainly responsible for elimination of mercury through the bile. Okay, coffee enemas stimulate glutathione S-transferase locally in hepatocytes, right? And so there's a direct connection there between improving uh, bile flow and glutathione S-transferase locally in the liver that helps your body to eliminate those uh, or activate those molecules which the body uses endogenously to eliminate mercury, right? Which is a very important concept in this work is that the mineral balancing is trigger, triggering much better activation and much better detoxifying capacity of your own detoxification systems. It's not going in there and ripping out mercury or ripping out lead from like your bones or your heart or whatever. It's enhancing your own detoxification system to such a degree that it starts to work much better, uses its own um, metal binding proteins, antioxidant enzymes to eliminate these metals. So like sauna uh, and the use of a near-infrared sauna has a massive effect on uh, kidney function because anything that you sweat out is going to relieve the kidneys of having to process that stuff. Uh, right? So, and then there are certain frequencies of light coming from those 250 watt incandescent heat lamps, which activate mitochondrial pathways and detoxifying enzymes as well. So it improves the kidneys. It improves the skin. The coffee enemas improve the liver and glutathione S transferase and bile flow. So we take a lot of care to deal with and mitigate those detoxification symptoms that inexorably come about as a result of this program. But if you choose to try this program without, especially doing the coffee enemas, you, you could be in a world of hurt because most people's livers and kidneys are really, really backed up and it's going to, it's just going to take longer and the experience is going to be uh, way more difficult than if you were doing them. Yeah. And I'm glad we touched on that because the goal you know, at least from my, you know, you can always correct me since I'm still new to researching all this is seems like we're trying to open up those elimination pathways. That's the main route that we want to go, but then the body will use the hair if need be. And so if you see a small uptick on a hair test where it doesn't look like much, it just, it still has given us a good idea of what you may be eliminating via the liver and the kidney and stuff like that. Correct. So as long as we're seeing movement, that means that we're at least moving it around. And maybe if it's not a giant jump, hopefully with the enemas and the saunas, you might have been removing it in a different way, but the hair test still gives us a good basis and things to look at to where it's like, okay, okay, you did move around a little mercury. You did move a little aluminum, even if it's just a small amount, at least it's moving because in the beginning a lot of times people are in that poor eliminator phase and there's basically that's where i was where i wasn't eliminating anything so a small movement's better than no movement yeah small movement is telling us that there's an elimination in process especially if you're following the protocol really well um that's how we know an elimination is taking place versus just normal metabolism of the elements um or maybe the body's just getting rid of something for some other reason but there, there, like there are drawbacks to using a hair analysis. There's no single perfect test that we can use, right, um, to measure 
like elimination, all the elimination pathways all at once, right? I mean, ideally in a perfect world, you might do like a urine test every day for three months. You might do a blood draw every day for three months. You might do fecal uh, analysis every day for three months while you also do the hair test. That would theoretically give you a better idea of what was being eliminated through what tissue, but you can use the hair to approximately gauge if an elimination process is occurring at uh, at the time scale that the, the hair is being measured. Since the hair and the yeah, skin is an totally agree. It's an eliminative tissue, right? Same same as the bowels and the or, or the uh, you know through the liver and the kidneys. Yeah, absolutely. So at least it gives us that good gauge. There's, you know, like you said, there's really hopefully one day with all technology, we'll be able to put our palm on something one day. And it just is like, wow, this is everything that's being eliminated. This is all the metals you have. Here's like a mineral status. You know, I've tried to play around with the um, oligo scan all year. I've done probably like seven or eight of those. And it's a lot. It's you know, a lot different than the hair test. So, I mean, it's different. It's showing me something. It pulls up some different metals than what the hair test does. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. if there is like some use case where you would be able to kind of like, you know, cause the cadmium is really high on the oligo scan and it's fluctuated, but the HTMA hasn't really showed barely a tiny little bit of movement of cadmium. So, um, you know, maybe in the future one day we'll have some technology that's a little bit more advanced than even the oligo scan, or maybe they'll build upon their technology and we'll get somewhere where we can kind of see where everything, what's all being eliminated, if, if the organs of elimination are functioning and everything like that. But for now, I think the HTMA is the best we got. Yeah, I definitely think the HTMA is the single best test that we can use. Um, there was something I posted on my Instagram stories recently about the idea of timescales. And um, timescales is a really important idea. This is definitely not something that's well known, but um, you know we're measuring the mineral uh, composition of the hair um, over a very specific time scale, right? And that actually gives us more information. Not only are we measuring the minerals and the relationship to one another, but it's being done over a time scale. So there's a sort of another dimension or a level of dimensionality that's added to the hair test. And when you see how these elements vary in relationship to one another over time, that actually tells you a lot more than like doing a single point measurement um, of, uh, you know, just like a blood, blood draw or, uh, or like a urine test. Um, and, and there was actually a really interesting paper that I just read from 2018 looking at uh, variation in zinc and copper, uh, zinc and copper levels in relationship to one another, but over a specific time scale using teeth. Uh, and they actually, they can measure the variation between zinc and copper over different time scales. And when zinc and copper vary, like, or there's more variance in a specific time scale, they can use that to predict whether or not someone might develop autism. So the time scale idea that the time scale thing is a lot bigger idea than I think people really get, or I don't, I don't even, you know, I don't think anyone knows about this even, but, um, the, the metabolism of the elements is always in flux in the body. It's never that you just have like a specific set amount of zinc or iron or calcium or magnesium. There's always these fluxes and changes 
in the elemental composition all throughout the system that occur all the time. So variation, you know, even at the level of a millisecond or a second or a minute or a day or a, uh, or two weeks or a month or a year, right? There are different time scales that you can measure these mineral relationships in and the variations or fluctuations within the different time scales can tell us information about, uh, you know, the development of or the pathogenesis of certain diseases. And so in this study, they were able to look at different timescales uh, for the zinc and copper ratio and make predictions based on mathematical models that autism would develop in variations in zinc and copper over this timescale. And there were bigger variations in this timescale or fewer variations in this timescale. It's kind of similar to, to give a concrete analog or analogy, it's similar to heart rate variability, where variation or ability to uh, have a higher heart rate when you need to is a sign of very high vitality and health. If you have higher variability through certain timescales between the elements, that's telling us that the body is able to meet the needs and demands that it's being placed under. So this idea of timescales adds a level of dimensionality that not a lot of people, I have never heard anyone talk about this, uh, you know, but it's in the future. This is where a lot of very exciting research is going. Um, and so there's different, we can talk about timescales with respect to, let's say, a second or um, a minute or 12 hours or a full day. A full day time scale, 24 hours, is circadian, right? So there are people that are sort of hinting at this idea of the time scale in the circadian biology space and the, and the light, water, and magnetism space, which is very good. All of these variations in these elements are dependent on the interactions between the elements, but also on the time scales. Your hormones also similarly vary along the different periods of a day. Higher levels of aldosterone and cortisol in the morning, much lower levels of those at night, much higher melatonin. The same is true for the elements. The elements vary in relationship based on these circadian time scales, on the hourly time scale, um, on the monthly time scale, on the three to four month time scale, which is what we use in hair analysis, and then at the year and decade time scale with respect to heavy metals. The half-life of heavy metals uh, varies based on this decade-long time scale, right? So the time scale notion is critical to understand. It's a much, much higher level concept. It's just being elaborated on in the literature, just like all of these other um, higher level concepts with respect to the mineral interactions and the heavy metals, right? Um, a lot of that stuff was elaborated on clinically by Dr. Eck and Dr. Wilson, Finally, the research is catching up to what they were doing, right? But using the hair analysis, we're able to measure the minerals in the, in the cells over a specific time scale, right? And the variations in that time scale tell us a lot, right? Getting the first test is good, but getting your retest is even better because you get to see the change that occurs. And then after that second test, you get the third test, 
that might put the first and second test in a different light based on the changes that occur on that third test, right? And then there are inter, uh, intervariations within that three to four month period that can tell us maybe even more about uh, the relationship between the minerals and metals and what's going on. So um, I'm really excited about the timescale idea and superimposing this idea on the relationships between the minerals and the mineral system. I think it's really the future of not only, I mean, we already kind of do it using this system, which is so exciting. Research is catching up to this notion, but this is why the timescale idea explains why doing single point measurements on like one element tells you nothing. It might be able to tell you if you have an overt deficiency state of like a, an individual element, you have rickets or you have a goiter or you have anemia because you have low iron, iodine or low vitamin D. But beyond that, right, traditional nutritional sciences is kind of inert like medicine to do anything interesting or achieve optimal function, right? So using these diagnostics, understanding the timescale idea is really interesting. And um, I, I held off on posting something because I wanted to talk about this on the podcast, but there's an interaction between the gut microbiome, heavy metals, and these time scales. And I hinted at it before, but mercury, the half-life of mercury can be affected by the microbiome and the balance of the microflora in the gut due to antibiotic use. So you can alter the time scale of the half-life of mercury by altering the gut microbiome, which when you alter the half-life of mercury exists in your system for longer, there's more potential for havoc to be created down the line. There's second and third order effects that that mercury has the longer it's inside of you. Mercury can lower selenium, it can lower zinc. And then there's this sort of cascading effect, second and third order effects where the mercury, if it exists inside of you longer, it's lowering zinc, it's lowering selenium. Zinc is then affecting copper and calcium and iron, right? This is this explains why or how the development of diseases and conditions and symptoms actually takes place, which is what people care about. How did I develop this weird chronic condition that I can't resolve? It's through the accumulation of these different adaptations, these different mineral deficiencies that are affecting each other, that are varying in relationship in these different time scales. And so to undo all of this, you have to do it at the level of the mineral system and through the lens of this time scale notion. And, and really that's why we get such good results with mineral balancing as well. Dude, that was fascinating. Two, th two things I want to touch on there. One is when you said the, the antibiotic and mercury thing earlier, I was like, mm -hmm. damn, maybe that's like, summed me right up because I used to have chronic ear infections. I had like 12 different ear surgeries. Like I've been under anesthesia, like a shit ton from that. And, mm. uh, through that process, they would just give me like, and I, I would be on three, four different antibiotic cycles, like a year. And then you match that with like standard American diet. And I had like, I, I had to have at least like eight mercury fillings, you know what I mean? And so if you look at that science there, it was definitely even making the mercury problem from the fillings worse just because I was always on the um, antibiotics. So that makes a total, a lot of sense. I always thought, yeah, the antibiotics and the mercury, um, you know, together definitely 
didn't help any of my Lyme disease or whatever, you know, whatever diagnosis you want to label what I had. Um, but now that you look at the science like that, you're like, oh, it even makes more sense. Like, you know, you know, it was like a double whammy and then the standard American diet where there's just heavy metals coming in it all the time. And then the timescale thing is super fascinating with it. It shouldn't make a lot of sense to anybody who's ever studied circadian biology for one, because you, you know, you'd learn about the hormones and light and how it's affected. And also anybody who's ever been a little bit sick and had like a 24 hour, like saliva type of test where you can see the cortisol rhythms and things like that. You notice that if the hormones fluctuate every day and things are in, you know, that's different from different time periods, why wouldn't the mineral system and things like that also be changing depending on what your body's needs or is doing at that certain moment. So that's super fascinating in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And the time scales overlap with each other. You have daily rhythms, but women know this. They have a monthly rhythm with their menstrual cycle, right? So the daily rhythms over mm-hmm. overlap and interact with the monthly rhythms, with which overlap with like the, the, uh, the yearly rhythms, right? There's seasonal variations in hormones as well. And the mineral levels and ratios, that's a very interesting maybe future avenue for research, how the hair test and mineral patterns vary along with the seasons. There's potentially seasonal variations, I think, that could exist. And then when you start to look at the longer timescales, right, uh, or even look at timescales in development, like there's the nine-month uh, timescale where the mom is growing the baby inside of her. Then there's the, the timescale from like zero to one, which is very important for certain uh, neuronal development, right? And all the way up to when you're 21 and through 25, there's timescales that are going at all of these different points. And then when we look at like the timescale for the half-life of metals, that's a very interesting way to uh, look at this as well, because many of the metals, their half-life is sometimes 10 years, 30 years, 50 years and 90 years, it could be over the entire lifespan. We're looking at a time scale over your entire lifespan, right? So in some sense, with mineral balancing, we can reverse engineer not only the mineral system, but the time scale variation in that system, Um, which is, I think, I don't know if it's maybe too much for this podcast, but future avenues of research, I think are really, uh, exciting, I think. Yeah, no, that, that's beautiful. I love that. I'm excited to, uh, learn from you and why, as you keep researching that one thing you actually mentioned in there, which I think would be a really good, my wife was all about this. Um, I think a lot of people have questions about this. You mentioned the nine months that a woman's pregnant. What have you seen as far as like, uh, women trying to get pregnant as far as like should they not do the mineral balancing protocol because they're detoxing metals should they not do it when they're breastfeeding like that's a common question that i get quite a bit 100 percent, very valid question you know moms are definitely very uh sensitive to harming their babies so um i think mineral balancing is very safe in pregnancy there are certain tweaks to the programs that we make like we don't use like the red light sauna directly shining on the belly because of the heat. Uh, there's some maybe uh, notion or literature to suggest that heating up the fetus is very bad. So we don't do that at all. Um, but mineral balancing is going to improve your organs of elimination. Just by virtue of the mineral balancing itself, 
But there's also things that we can do, like the coffee enemas are still very helpful to help the liver. And like the improvement in the mineral ratios improves liver and kidney function as well. So we can um, protect against, I think, uh, deposition or uh, in utero mobilization of metals as well if, you, if you're on a mineral balancing program. And in lactation, this is a really good question. I, I've gotten this question a lot. There was a lot of uh, big controversy about this uh, maybe a couple months ago with a client of mine um, who was very unhappy. But the breast milk is not really a main excretory pathway for heavy metals. And there was a study I was looking at specifically about a week ago looking at rice and arsenic and uh, there was some paper that were that was quoted in this study talking about other synthetic toxicants can can be eliminated through the breast milk, but it's very unlikely for metals to be eliminated there. So when you mineral balancing is very safe for moms in pregnancy. We have many uh, women, um, you know, many clients who are on this program and protocol in pregnancy. And it's also safe during lactation because we can improve the organs of elimination to such a degree that you're not going to be eliminating like cadmium or any of the other metals through the breast milk. If you can improve the skin, the liver and the kidneys, which we do, we pay much attention to um, in this protocol, you can basically totally ensure none of those metals will be eliminated through the breast milk. And quite the contrary, the breast milk quality is going to be much better. Your pregnancy is going to be much healthier, right? Because you're getting the minerals balanced uh, that need to be balanced to actually grow a baby inside of you. But I think the best thing to do is get on a mineral balancing program for a year or two before you even conceive. Get really healthy. My wife's been on it. Yeah. Yeah, my wife's been on it. I think she did. I got told her to get one she started like a month before me ironically because mm-hmm. i was kind of still doing research about it and i was on a different protocol and i told her to start it off and then i got a test right after her but i dug into that research quite a bit and it seems to me that the the female body would rather give the baby the minerals coming in even if it held on to the metals themselves i think right. a lot of the dumping is probably just out of like a survival or that's all they have so if a, right. if a baby takes 10 percent of your minerals but you have none all you can do is give them the metals, but if you're you're consuming the minerals, I would think the nature of just the human design would rather give the baby the minerals, even if that means you hold on to the metals for a longer period of time. I just think that it's sophisticated enough to kind of you know make that decision, but that's just me. That's actually a really good point. Yeah, that's almost exactly how it works. <laughs> yeah. I just I don't know why I thought that, but I'm like, why wouldn't the mom? it knows that it's growing a baby. Why wouldn't it give the baby the minerals that are coming in instead of like dumping the metals? It's dumping the metals most likely because that's the only thing there. If you're just eating a mineral depleted diet, you've been mineral depleted for 30 years and there's only metals to be given because I've heard that babies take around 10% of your minerals. Well, if there's only metals there to give, then that's what happens. But if there's minerals coming in, I would imagine they would rather give your baby those. So that's just my opinion. 100%. Yeah, that's a good point. Cool. Do you want to jump into, I feel like this is a good time to get to the, 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 the last theme of the show. I'm kind of excited about it and is to talk about uh, Dr. Wilson here. So who is Dr. Wilson? Um, what was your time period like working with him? All, all the things, Dr. Wilson. 
Yep. So Dr. Wilson, um, you know, trained directly under Paul Eck, under Dr. Paul Eck. And Dr. Paul Eck is like the grandfather of mineral balancing. He's the one that started to use HTMA in this mineral balancing paradigm. And Dr. Wilson trained under Dr. Paul Eck uh, for like 14, 15 years. And, you know, after Dr. Eck died, Dr. Wilson continued doing this work. And he's been the main proponent of this mineral balancing protocol, um, you know, since like 1996 in uh, when Dr. Eck passed. So he is the main guy um, in this space. And he's been the main guy since 1996. You know, he maintains a pretty uh, elaborate blog website, um, you know, but Dr. Wilson's a bit mysterious. A lot of us in this space, um, including Susan Cachet, Luke Pryor, Lewis Rollins, um, other practitioners, myself included, trained directly with Dr. Wilson and worked with him directly for many years. So there is a lineage back to Dr. Paul Eck. That's why Dr. Wilson's important. Dr. Wilson, um, in some ways, improved on the program, the mineral balancing programs um, over the years. But, you know, maybe like 70% of the mineral balancing protocols as we know them now comes from Dr. Eck. A lot of the mineral patterns that we identify on the test itself come from Dr. Eck. Dr. Wilson, though, did add a lot. He added the near-infrared sauna. There's many different uh, mineral patterns like sympathetic dominance and some of the other more complicated uh, mineral patterns like the bowl pattern, the double O ratio pattern, which Dr. Wilson identified after Dr. X passing. So he has kept up uh, Dr. X legacy, basically. And a lot of us in this space who are doing this now and who are younger and want to get this message out, um, you know, in a professional and really um, digestible manner, a lot of us trained with Dr. Wilson, who used to offer certification programs um, through an online university. And many of us were basically trained in this training program or certification program. Um, and then we worked with Dr. Wilson for many years. And like myself, I worked with Dr. Wilson for four years. Others like Luke and Lewis, I think worked with him for a little more than five. Susan worked with him for like 10 years. And, you know, so we have a lot of experience with him directly beyond just looking at the website that he maintains, which is a point of contention for a lot of people. Um, and it's understandable why. Part of why we bring this up in the first place is because there's a lot of mm, spicy things on his website that, you know, you might go to the to the layperson or to the, the normie who's just coming across this stuff for the first time. They might go, what the hell is going on here? Like he's talking about rogue aliens and, you know, all of these other weird ideas. Uh, what is this? How, how does this relate to mineral balancing or hair tissue mineral analysis? Right. Um, so, you know, Dr. Wilson, in my opinion, is a genius. And in the same way that you have the hot, crazy matrix for women, the hotter those women get, the crazier they usually tend to be. There's a genius madness matrix for these really, really high IQ guys where along with the genius, you're going to get a touch of madness. And um, some of us don't know what to make of it, basically. Um, when it comes to the work of mineral balancing and hair tissue mineral analysis and these programs, um, you know, if you read Dr. Wilson's book on, on this subject, it's one of the most incredible scientific books 
that I've ever read in the last 10 years, the last decade, you know, so um, there's a, an incredible contribution and debt that I think that many of us owe to Dr. Wilson and not only through his training and I healed on a program that was designed by Dr. Wilson, right? So sometimes I get people who are like, who is this Dr. Wilson character? He seems a little crazy, a little, you know, weird or uh, quirky. And, you know, I used to work with him. I don't work with him now kind of for that reason. I understand a lot of these criticisms that people have of Dr. Wilson, but I do get a little defensive when people want to throw out his work entirely or, you know, judge him in a final way about this guy offers nothing to the world and he's a danger to people and he has nothing to offer just because of like one weird article on his website when they're not taking into account his massive contribution um, and the way in which he's really helped thousands of people, including myself, you know, and others who are really on these programs now who are, you know, on programs that that were essentially designed and, and um, set up by Dr. Wilson, you know, so um, there's a lot of controversy there. Um, I when my experience working with Dr. Wilson was really good for the most part. We had a pretty good relationship. Um, and this is also why I'm reticent to throw him under the bus just because of some weird stuff. There's a lot of very famous people who won't ever mention their relationship with Dr. Wilson because they're kind of scared of the association, which I think is a little dishonest. Uh, I won't name names, but uh, there are some prominent people in this space who, you know, he's sort of like Voldemort. They won't mention his name. Um, but my time with Dr. Wilson was really great. He was really personable on the phone. We never met in person. We talked on the phone a lot and I would work sometimes through other practitioners who would talk to him over email, uh, you know, but we would talk on the phone about certain things. I would call him up sometimes after having read a paper or a group of papers and be like, what do you think about this? You know, or I would send him links from papers that I was reading. He, he has a lot of references on his website on certain papers. A lot of those papers I was like feeding him and sending him saying like, look at this, this is really cool. You know, so we had a pretty good working relationship and I know others had a good working relationship with him, but, um, you know, there's a lot of baggage associated with him and, and some of the weird stuff on his website. And so for that reason, I stopped working with him. It was kind of a mutual decision to stop working together in uh, November of last year. So um, it's, a, it's a complicated situation with him. I have nothing but uh, well wishes for him and, and I'm grateful in the extreme for his work. Um, and for healing on his program and, you know, for all of the information that's on his website, most of it's still quite profound, you know, and really good. So, um, yeah, that's what I have to say about that. Yeah. I mean, for me, not ever having worked with him in just going through, like, you know, I just was, uh, doing all the questions that Susan gave me in her course. And a lot of, there was a lot of questions from his book and I was going to the books. Amazing. And then anytime I kind of don't understand something when I'm trying to, um, if someone asked me a question about mineral balancing or something, I'll just type in Dr. L Wilson and then I'll type in the supplement or something and see if something pops up. And I mean, there's great information as far as mineral balancing on there. And then like, you have to just kind of 
decipher because like sometimes it'll be a normal article and then he throws in like something about women all women being raped or like um you know some rogues and ever aliens and everyone's got entities and do like right. in the middle of a coffee enema uh, article you'll he'll be like do two coffee enemas d- a day to keep entities away from you and it's some people are kind of right. like so it's like it's a little confusing and you have to kind of leave that out and i mean maybe if he just had like a separate website where he put out all his views on the world and then left the mineral balancing one is just the mineral balancing it would people would kind of be like okay he's got this but he like throws them right in the middle of some of the of the articles i think which is kind of confusing to people as well because they're in the middle of reading like what seems like a scientific like normal article and then there's just like rogues and aliens on there and you know did was it always like that with him or was it like gradually he just started updating more and more or was it so there was like a hard cut off with you guys yeah i think it started it was a gradual thing like his website his blog has been up in operation since like 2011 and i think around like 2014 he starts to write about that stuff more you know the rogues and like all women are mm-hmm. being raped and you know do coffee enemas to avoid uh you know uh other, you know, like entities or whatever. And so I think it, things sort of progressed from 2014 onwards. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people kind of got tired of it. And, and the mixing of the that stuff, the really woo-woo out there stuff and like the space stuff and like the earth is moving in space and, you know, we can tell you when that's happening. Um, it's getting mixed in with the mineral balancing stuff and the HTMA you know, and that I think does throw people off, especially people that are new to this. They're like, what the hell is going on with this guy? You know, and I, I had that like controversy, you know, what was it like two months ago now, a month and a half ago, that kind of happened with a client over this thing. And to some degree, I understand why people react the way that they do. Um, when they see this stuff and they go, oh my gosh, this guy's crazy. They don't have the background of like having worked with him and, and having read his book and knowing the history of HTMA and how he worked with Dr. Eck. So it's the mixing of the two things, I think, that um, throws people off. And yeah, you know, like Luke and Lewis were one of the first to leave, um, along with a bunch of other practitioners. Then Susan left, and then I left. I was like the last man standing, you know, uh, at the end of it, 2022. So, yeah. But, you know. Yeah, I think I. Go ahead. I think when I was like researching, looking, I've uh, watched some of like Lewis's YouTube stuff around HTMA, um, you know, because especially when I was trying to uh, interview Susan, like they have a lot of videos together. So then I just started watching other ones. And I think he even said, you know, to a point it got where like he he said the guides were telling him things and, um, you know, sometimes it wasn't what what lewis felt like was you know was right and was what he had learned so i think there was some contraindications where he got a little too out there and i wonder if like something just happened over time because it seems like all of you guys had a pretty good you know relationship with him and learned a lot and then there's like just slowly oh gradually over time he's gotten a little bit more out there yeah yeah and you know you 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 wonder what it is um i don't really know i think we could speculate but um you know, who knows? I never, I, I never met Dr. Wilson in person. We only ever spoke on the phone and that's true for most of us as well. You know, so that, mm-hmm. that was actually another sort of red flag for me where I was like, you know, we're all sort of working together. Uh, we're working with Dr. Wilson. Um, you know, there should be like, I don't know, we have a conference every year. We should all meet up and, 
and there should be that face to face or like, you know, beyond just the video or just beyond the phone call that we do together. Let's meet up. It adds trust. It adds credibility. And so that's the direction I'm trying to go with this. Um, and I know that others as well, like Dr. Wendy Myers, Susan, Luke and Lewis and Aaron, we want to take it in that direction where we give this space a lot more credibility. Dr. Wilson has done that, but there's also been some detrimental things that have turned a lot of people off to HTMA um, and to mineral balancing. And it, and it kind of has shut off uh, conversation lines that we could be having with other big influencers who might be interested in this space. Right. Um, you know, and that's kind of what I've been doing with Dr. Leland Stillman. We kind of have a really cool relationship uh, where we're doing this HTMA secrets course where we're training people to analyze hair tests properly. We're doing group coaching along these lines, you know, and, uh, um, you know, Dr. Stillman is one of those guys who's uh, kind of like a bigger influencer on Instagram and is very interested in is open minded, is a really open minded physician. Um, and has a lot of this great training, went to UVA medical school, which is one of the top tier medical schools in, in the country, you know? So I think focusing in on the science and how wonderful the science is and how wonderful hair testing is, is the direction that I think a lot of us want to take this. Um, you know, but I think in some respects, Dr. Wilson is detrimental to that end, but, um, but you know, if he's listening or, or if anyone shows this to him, I'm eternally grateful to uh, him and his information and this program. So, um, yeah, it's an unfortunate thing. Yep. Beautifully said. I'm glad you're, you know, still taking the good out of everything. And I, I like what you said, because I do actually think if you look just in history, you know, people who are super geniuses always, you know, there's something, there's a correlation there with being a little batshit crazy, you know, I think, I think of like Kanye West when I think of that, you know, like obviously just super genius, but like just, you see him on TV or whatever, and he's just out a little out of control and he's, he's got that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because he's just so damn smart and so damn creative where he's like, I don't even think he's meant to like be in this human body. And maybe, maybe Dr. Wilson in in a different aspect is somewhat similar. And, I think that, you know, we, you know, as a collective, the people that you guys are all, you know, working with, you know, are pretty level headed, seem legit, have seen the program work. I think mm-hmm. if you guys keep hammering home the information that um, it'll definitely it's already kind of seems like it's sparking some interest in general, just from social media and how I see all the practitioners are kind of booked up. And uh, hopefully I can just be a little help with the podcast. I think that um, I love the program and have had good success so far with it. I think over the next year or two, I'll really see some even way more improvements. And I'm just hoping to, uh, you know, let you guys talk as much as possible. I've had Aaron, Susan, I'm doing a show with Lewis in a couple of weeks. So any way I can help any of you guys spread the message, I'm down. Yeah, man, really appreciate that. And, And to anyone that's ever, you know, given me a platform, I'm really, really grateful to like Matt Blackburn, Wendy Myers. I was on Noah Ryan's podcast, was on Cameron uh, Borg's podcast, Ricky Flow Nutrition. Um, I'm going to be in a documentary uh, that Wendy Myers is shooting that Dr. Mercola is going to be in. You know, so anyone that's ever really given me a platform, you know, including you, man, like this is really, I'm so grateful for it because I think, you know, it's not only like good business, but it's really about the mineral balancing message and getting this out to people. Um, this is, it's sort of like a passion project for me that's turned into my profession. 
And I, I tend to think that, that those are the best businesses out there, the people that are really passionate about what they're doing. And I was altered. My life was altered dramatically by this mineral balancing protocol. And I went through massive heavy, heavy metal eliminations. I went through nickel eliminations, lead, copper, calcium, aluminum. Um, and my life was just dramatically changed by this. And now the cool thing about this is that I'm able to, uh, you know, administer this program and help other people go through this process and eliminate metals and change their life, like just in, in a way that they didn't really think was possible, you know. And if you look at my Instagram and a lot of others, we're posting results of clients that it's very hard to get these sort of changes and results in people. Um, and so at the end of the day, I've said this a lot, you know, I think the theory and the science behind everything is good to discuss and it's fascinating. But at the end of the day, this is about results, showing the heavy metal eliminations, showing the mineral tests changing, and then hearing the changes that are occurring in some of our clients and actually showing that to people um, in a way that breeds trust. That's really what this is all about at the end of the day. You know, and the fact that I'm able to do that and you guys are able to give me that platform, I'm extremely grateful for that. Yeah, I, I'm extremely grateful that someone gave you a platform. It was Blackburn's podcast that you mentioned that got me. It seemed like I was connecting a lot of dots. I had been down the Morley Robbins rabbit hole, then the Jason Hommel I was doing, the Copper Protocol. And I did get some, you know, I'm not mad at Jason Hommel. I don't think he should be deplatformed. I felt a little bit better. I, I uh, removed some parasites on that protocol. It was like, you know, it was like a Band-Aid a little bit, but it did. I felt better than before I had done it. But then, you know, once I heard your message and was like, well, let me try to just dial this in a little bit more. And that's where I've seen the most effective results. And so I think you do need the test at the end of the day. And so um, I'm just very grateful that, you know, your message resonated with me because it's helped me tremendously as well. So uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? Your Instagram's fucking phenomenal. So anybody, you, you know, definitely drop that because I love all the posts you do on Facebook and Instagram. They're incredible, really well thought out. I mean, super deep in the science. They're amazing. Uh, yeah, let them know about your Instagram and social medias and uh, how to work with you for sure. Yeah, so my Instagram is just uh, all lowercase nutritional underscore analytics. Um, and that's really the main place that I've been putting out content for the last, like, you know, since 2020. So last three or four years, um, I do post a little bit. I do longer form stuff on Facebook under my, uh, personal name, Clark Jeffrey. Um, and then I've been doing a lot of, um, webinar stuff, a lot of YouTube lives with Dr. Leland Stillman. You can find a lot of those lives that we do, uh, kind of related to the HTMA secrets course that we've been doing. Um, on his YouTube channel, Dr. Leland Stillman, or it might be actually Leland Stillman MD on YouTube. Um, so you can find a lot of those videos there. But then if you want to work with me one-to-one, -one, um, just go to www.nutritionalanalytics.com. That's the website where you can purchase the different hair testing packages that we offer. Um, you know, But the Instagram is like the main place that I'm putting out most content. And if you want to talk to me, if you want to get on a discovery call with me, if you want to work with me and my team, um, you know, you can book a discovery call by, by like clicking the link in my bio in Instagram. And, and really what I tell most people is you kind of have to do a little background, um, 
info, a, a little bit of background research on all of this. Because um, it's not a simple protocol and you want to be sure that you know what you're getting into. So do a little research of your own on the Instagram profile. I've been on a lot of different podcasts. Dr. Wendy Myers, Matt Blackburn, shout out to both of those people. Matt um, is a really great dude. Wendy is one of my favorite people in this space as well. She's really cool. So big thanks to those uh, those folks for bringing me on and giving me a platform as well. So you know they're on Apple Pod, they're on um, you know Apple Podcasts. They're also on Spotify. Check that out. Um, but in the future, um, we'll we'll see what I do. I might uh, I might do a Substack in the future so I can put a lot of this stuff down in writing. I, I think writing is really my strong suit. I do like the video as well in terms of putting out content, but I really love to write, and that's really where um, a lot of my talent lies. Awesome, brother. Thank you so much. I'm glad we uh, made this happen. I think it's going to be really beneficial. Thank you so much, dude, for bringing me on. Really appreciate Later it. On, brother. See ya. If you enjoy this show, would you please take a second to subscribe, rate, and review it for me? Also, if you'd like to know more information about Combo, personalized one-on-one coaching with me, or for upcoming retreat information, which I host with my wife, please visit my website in the show notes or DM me on Instagram. My handle over there is at Integrative Matt. Until next time, my friends.